This film is lit. The podcast where we finally settle the score on one simple question. Is the book really better than the movie? I'm Brian, and I have a film degree, so I watch the movie, but don't read the book. And I'm Katie. I have an English degree, so I do things the right way and read the book before we watch the movie. So prepare to be wowed by our expertise and charm as we dissect all of your favorite film adaptations and decide if the silver screen or the written word did it better. So turn it up, settle in, and get ready for spoilers, because this film is lit. How do you expect to communicate with the ocean when you can't even understand one another? It's Solaris, and this film is lit. Hello and welcome back to this film is lit podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. I don't know what episode number this is. I don't know why I felt inclined to say the episode number because we, we stopped. We haven't done I still number them in, in my in my files. Yeah, for reasons, but I, I it's like. 90-ish? In We're that closing in on We're closing in 100. on 100. None of that matters. Uh, welcome back. Uh, before we get started in this episode, I did want to mention that you can support us on Patreon. Uh, we just released a bonus episode for the $5 and up patrons where we reviewed 2018's Cold War, which is another Polish film mm-hmm. like this one. Uh, and if you want to hear our thoughts on that film, you support us for 5 bucks a month over on Patreon.com slash This Film Is Lit. You get access to that and the back catalog of all of our other bonus content reviews uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then we also want to mention here at the beginning that this is an Academy Award winning patron request from Eli Young's. If you support us for $15 or more a month, you get priority recommendation status. And that is why we are doing Solaris. Uh, I have so many notes. Uh, yeah. This is going to be a bit of a long one. Hopefully we can move through them quickly. I think they're organized efficiently. We shall see. <laughs> We have all of our segments, so let's get right into it with Let Me Sum Up. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Chris Kelvin lands on the research station on Solaris to begin his stint as a solarist, a scientist that studies Solaris, a planet composed entirely of one single organism, the ocean. Upon landing, he finds the station in disarray, one of the inhabitants recently deceased and the other two infuriatingly unhelpful, mysterious, and untrustworthy. He begins to investigate what has happened on the station, finding few answers, before he is visited by the reincarnation of his wife, who committed suicide ten years previously. We then fluctuate from history and science lessons about Solaris and the ability-slash-inability of humans to ever truly make, quote, contact with such an alien life form, and Kelvin and Rhea-slash-Hari's relationship. I'm just going to put that out right now. And there's lots of name change, fair number of name changes from book to movie. Mm. In the book, the translation that I read... Uh, Hari in the movie is Rhea. I'm going to call her Hari from here on out, but they're mm-hmm. the same character. I believe Hari is the actual name from the original. Okay. Hari does not remember her past. She doesn't understand who she is, but knows she must be with Kelvin. Kelvin, likewise, is horrified by the nearly identical copy of his dead wife and who is nevertheless clearly not her. Ultimately, he comes to the conclusion that he wants to be with her, but after she starts to come to terms with who and what she is and the fact that her existence will tie Kevin to Solaris forever, she has snow slash snout, snow in the book, Oh, snout in the... (laughs) And again, in this translation, I believe in the more... 
the the translation I didn't read that we talked about in the prequel being like a better translation uh-huh. according to people like the the wife and son of the author. I believe it is still snout. So okay. Okay. Uh, this is an English translation of snow. Um, she has Snow help uh, destroy herself so that Kelvin can move on with his life. The story ends with Kelvin confronting the ocean and contemplating all of the themes previously explored over the course of the novel. Uh, the movie is largely similar with very large changes, <laughs> uh, but the bones are very similar. We'll be discussing the changes over the course of this episode. We have lots of notes, um, so we don't need to do a separate movie. I mean, there is significant changes, but we're going to get into all that, so... Uh-huh laying it out here at the beginning i don't think is necessary so we do have guess who let's do it who are you no one of consequence i must know. get used to disappointment okay okay i have five guess who's this week uh five descriptions from the book let's see how you do i don't i think this may be difficult is it all the same characters though? all of the same characters are that are in all, yes, all of these people are in the movie. Like, okay. In some capacity, these descriptions are all of characters in the movie. Okay. I'll say that. In this armchair, there was a little thin man, his face burnt by the sun, the skin on his nose and cheeks coming away in great chunks. He was wearing a mesh shirt, which allowed the gray hairs of his sunken chest to poke through here and there, and canvas trousers with a great many pockets, mechanics trousers, which had once been white, but now were stained at the knees and covered with holes from chemical burns. Hmm. Well, the face burnt by the sun makes me think of Snout because he had a very like he was uh, had not darker skin, but he did look kind of sunburned yeah. in the film. Um, mesh shirt. The only one we see wearing a mesh shirt is Kelvin. This is true. But this doesn't sound like Kelvin otherwise. This guy sounds older mm-hmm. and like he's been through the ringer a mm-hmm. little more. Um, I'm going to say this is snout. This is snout or snow in, awesome. in my translation. <laughs> um, yeah, I think they stole the the mesh shirt uh-huh. f- to put on Kelvin in the movie. I think they took yeah. that from his character because he's not wearing a mesh shirt from my recollection in the Mm-mm. film. He wears like a brown coat, like a leather coat of some sort a lot of the movie. And he has like just a shirt underneath it. Yeah. Um, but yes, this is snow slash snout. Um, and we'll get to the sunburn. That is actually an important description. That's a thing I have in a later note. So we'll get to that. It's interesting that you said that he does have sort of a maybe a sunburn or something in the movie because it's more than that. But we'll get to it. Uh, His glossy black second character here, his glossy black hair clung tightly to his skull. The sinews of his throat stood out like bones. This one's brief. That's all. Um, Yeah, there's not a lot to go on here. Um, I know it's not snout. Um. The other guy who's there, whose name is Sartorius, is bald in the movie. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I feel like this description has a a Sartorius vibe. So I'm going to go with that. This is a bit of a trick question. It's not a trick question, but it is tough. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not Sartorius. This is Jabarian. Oh, the guy who's dead. This is the description of his body when he looks at him. So it's a it's a hmm. bit of a tough. We only briefly see him in the movie. I it was yeah. a stretch, but I decided to put it in here anyways. 
Um, all right, here's the next one. Very tall and thin, all bones under his white sweater. He had a black scarf knotted around his neck, and over his arm he was carrying a laboratory smock covered in chemical burns. His head, which was unusually narrow, was cocked to one side. I could not see his eyes. He wore curved, dark glasses, which covered up half his face. His lower jaw was elongated. He had bluish lips and enormous blue-tinged ears. He was unshaven. Red anti-radiation gloves hung by their laces from his wrists. Okay, I'm going to say this is Sartorius. This is Sartorius, <laughs> who looks a little different. Uh, he's not unshaven in the movie. Yeah. I think would be the biggest difference. This doesn't describe his hair, so he, you know. Uh-huh. But he does have a smock, uh, the lab coat. Yeah. He's, he's in his lab most of the time. Um, and we'll find out later that he does some uh, radiation tinkering with things. So, okay, so two for three. Uh, here's the fourth one. She, she was wearing a white beach dress. The material stretched tightly over her breasts. She sat with her legs crossed. Her feet were bare. She gazed at me from beneath her black lashes with her dark hair brushed back. Okay, so that's obviously Hari. That is, yes, that is yeah. Hari. Right uh, down the, to the bare feet. Yes, which we'll talk more about later. Uh, and finally... A giant black woman was coming silently towards me. I want to apologize ahead of time for some of the language. And it's not I, I, I actually edited it down. There's a very where he says black woman is an, a very outdated term for describing oh. a black person. Not like not like a slur. Yeah. But like this is not something people say anymore. Yeah. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah. I gotcha. Um, a giant black woman was coming silently towards me with a smooth rolling gait. Uh, that being said, it still has some very iffy language in Uh here. Okay. Uh, I caught a gleam from the whites of her eyes and heard the soft slapping of her bare feet. She was wearing nothing but a yellow skirt of plated straw. Her enormous breasts swung freely and her black arms were as thick as thighs. Who was this monstrous Aphrodite? Well, (laughs) yeah. Um, (laughs) Yes. That is quite the description. Yes. Um, and obviously if you've seen the movie, this doesn't, apply to anybody in the film. Yeah, there there are but, no there are no. no black people no. at all in this movie. No. But I think you still may be able to come up with it potentially. Um, I mean, the only women that we see are Hari who we've already read a description of mm-hmm. um and his mother, Kelvin's mother. Mm-hmm. Oh, we see his aunt briefly. Yeah, his aunt. Um there's like and one very, two major clues in here I very think, briefly there's a girl like when he first gets there he like sees a girl walking around once or twice and it's kind of creepy i thought she was gonna end up being his hari his like his wife character mm-hmm. but i guess this could be that character it is that character this is sartorius's guest we never actually get a name no oh. Um, and we'll talk more about her later because there's some missed opportunities in the film, in my opinion. Uh, but the initial scene where we see her is kind of similar. She just walks down the hallway out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's just a Polish lady, like white person in the movie, um, yeah. which I think uh, I have that as better in the book. I think that was a solid change to just not make it some weird fetishized like black character is very yeah. interesting. I mean, if you did it in a way that wasn't weird and fetishized like this like this description is then sh- I guess right I guess she could have just been like uh, a yes, black lady. a black person yes <laughs> but but the, the description here is very yes I yeah guess that's is. this sounds very like cartoonish and yeah terrible yes I agree so I in that regard but um that is her and uh she in the movie and I don't know if you caught this she does go into where Sartor- Sartorius's body is 
and then disappears. Wait, I thought Sartorius was alive. Sorry, uh, this is, sorry, did I say this is Sartorius's companion? Yeah. I meant Jabarian's. My bad. My apologies. So he's dead, but she's still, like, kind of hanging around. She's still there. Yes. Okay. My apologies. This is Jabarian's companion, uh, guest or whatever. And she goes into the, and then she does this in the movie. She goes into the room where his body is, and then Mm -hmm. she, like, disappears after. Yeah, and we don't ever see her again, We'll talk more about that scene, because I'm astounded that they didn't do what happens in the book so we'll get there (laughs) we'll get there very very soon yeah because she just vanishes yeah and then we never see her again and we don't really ever see her again in the book after that scene where she goes into the locker or like the cold storage where his body is but Mm -hmm. there's more that goes on there and we'll get to it all right so you uh you got all four right yeah no four yeah no i i I got four yeah you got four four out of five five. yeah that's what i said (laughs) So you said all four. I said so four. I, like, I didn't get all of no, them. No, you got four out of five. All right. Let's go ahead. It's time. Katie's got so many questions. It's time to find out. Set in the book. Nicholas Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone. The what? Honestly, don't you two read? I had like, I had a lot more stuff and I, I deleted some stuff. Because I had a lot of questions following this movie. Obviously, I did not read this time, so I'm just kind of along for this ride. And this is this is definitely like not the kind of sci-fi that I am typically interested no. in, right. or like am overly familiar with a lot of the conventions of. So I did have a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, first off, so the movie starts out on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and we meet Kelvin and some of his family members um, and another character who had previously been to Solaris. Mm-hmm. Burton. Burton. Um, and we find out some stuff about Solaris ahead of Kelvin going there. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if any any of that was from the book. Uh, yes and no. Yes, the video of Burton giving his report on what he saw in Solaris is from the book. Okay. Um, it comes later as Kelvin is on Solaris doing some reading in the library, and he basically reads this report back to the audience, to mm-hmm. us as the readers. And I had a feeling, um, so I had snooped and saw that the movie didn't open how I expected, <laughs> because in the book, we start right on Solaris, like yeah. or him getting to Solaris, which happens about 45 minutes into the movie. Um, and we'll talk more about that later. But uh, I had a feeling I was like, so what are they going to try to what are they going to put in the beginning? And one of the things I thought they might was this Burton report, because it is an interesting part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what that is. Uh, but like I said, we were we don't get it in the beginning of the story. We get it like halfway. Th- well, I don't know, like 50 or 60 pages. That makes in. sense. And then the but the other part with Kelvin's father and his aunt and then an old Burton showing up to show this video of his report and stuff and talking to Kelvin and giving us backstory that none of that's in the book. Uh, Kelvin's family is mentioned like in passing, if at all. So we don't meet any of them. No. Okay. Uh, he may mention them a couple times in his like just musings or whatever, but it, it's not, uh, they're not a, a, a point of interest in the story. Um, so I think I prefer, uh, I had this in better in the book. I think I prefer getting right into it the way the book does. 
I do think it's an interesting way to move Burton's report to the beginning to kind of set up the mystery of the planet and what's because it, it all is presented as like this, like nobody believes him, mm-hmm. which is the same thing. And we'll get more to that in the book or uh, later. I'm conflicted on this change, but ultimately I think I prefer jumping right into the mystery that we get in the book. Like it's just him yeah. landing and then we're immediately and it's very similar to how it plays out in the book. and We'll talk about it or in the movie and we'll talk about it. But it's just him landing and then trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. On this station. And it's immediately very suspenseful and mysterious and thrilling. And the movie, it takes 45 minutes to get to that part. And we already kind of started slow. Starts a little slow. Um, Yeah. So we watched the video footage of Burton's testimony. And he one of the things he says that he he saw terrible things on Solaris. Um, One of the things that he says he saw was a giant naked child. Um, and then he ends up becoming like a laughing stock. Like everybody's kind of like laughing at him and not really taking him seriously. Um, so is any of that from the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I mentioned, that is all from the book. Uh, and I had this in the movie nailed it because they even nail a lot of the details of him seeing like the yellowing sludge under the surface that turns into like a garden. Um, but it's all made of the same material. Uh, and then he ultimately does see a 12-foot baby. I do think that the description in the book is slightly creepier. These movements had no meaning. Each of our movements means something, more or less, serves some purpose. Do you think so? The movements of an infant don't have much meaning. I know, but an infant's movements are confused, random, uncoordinated. The movements I saw were, that's it, they were methodical movements. They were performed one after the other like a series of exercises as though someone had wanted to make a study of what this child was capable of doing with its hands, its torso, its mouth. The face was more more horrifying than the rest because the human face had an expression and because the human face has an expression and this face, I don't know how to describe it. It was alive. Yes, but it wasn't human or rather the features as a whole, the eyes, the complexion were, but the expression, the movements of the face were certainly not. I've watched an epileptic fit. I know what you mean. This was not, this was something quite different. The movements I'm talking about were fluid, continuous, continuous, graceful, melodious. If one can say that of a movement, it's the nearest definition I can think of, but this face, a face can't divide itself into two, one half gay, the other sad, one half scowling, the other amiable, one half frightened and the other triumphant. But that's how it was with this child's face. In addition to that, all these movements and changes of expression succeeded one another with unbelievable rapidity. I stayed down there a very short time, perhaps 10 seconds or less. I'm imagining this like, spasming crazy like giant baby giant baby and just (laughs) being terrifying what that made me think of actually as you were reading that description do you remember back in the early days of like the internet the dancing the dancing baby yeah that is kind of what i thought of too or and the other thing it reminded me of and i think it's intentional potentially although at the time it was written this wouldn't have been a frame of reference is like when you see um robots mm-hmm. like more modern robots trying to like replicate yeah human emotions or yeah. something uh it reminded me of something like that it's very i don't know it's very creepy and they just don't go into as much detail in the movie um so to go on from that though his at the time of his report it was considered a laughing stop by pretty much everybody apart from the mentioned professor messenger who sides with him uh, i have this in better in the book so let's just go ahead and talk about it here And this is, I could be misremembering this or misapplying this, but I I don't believe I am. Burton's report was a laughingstock at the time Mm -hmm. uh, that he filed it. But in the intervening years, the solarists have come to know that, uh, like, most of what he said is true to at least some extent. Maybe not the baby part, but the rest of it. Because there are lengthy pages of descriptions of these things called mimoids, which make, like, mountain-sized copies of non-living stuff that people could, like, walk on and look at. 
that's like stuff from Earth. There are things called semi-triads that are like these physical representations of transcendental equations. It's super trippy and hard to like understand. The way they explain it is that the fate of a single man can be rich with significance, that of a few hundred less so. Um, and comparing that to trying to grasp like what the the meaning of these semi-triads and how they hmm. operate like and, and essentially saying that ultimately the semi-triads are like the uh, equivalent of entire civilizations. And so you can't you truly can't grasp it. And they describe them as a symphony in geometry, but we lack the ears to hear it. Uh, and so there's and there's also things called a semi-triads. There's a whole bunch that they know about Solaris and mm-hmm. what it does that is not in the movie at all yeah because it seemed like in the movie that like burton's testimony was pretty far removed from the main storyline but it still seemed like they didn't really know anything yeah and here's the thing is that they do and they don't in the book and that's kind of the point like Uh they we get entirely entire huge long sections of this book are are um kelvin in like the library relating like science textbooks about solaris to us those are like chunks of this and they're super interesting and they explain a lot, but at the same time, they still don't all of these things that they observed of Solaris doing and these shapes it makes and all this stuff. They don't understand why any of it happens. They have no, they're trying gotcha. been trying to communicate it and figure any of this stuff out. And they don't, it's all seemingly random. Like they don't understand it, but it, they do have more observations about it than what we, they seem to in the movie. Yeah. Um, they know a lot more about it. They've been studying it for like a hundred years and Burton's, I got the impression in the book, and I could be wrong about this, that Burton's, while initially his his report was seen as probably, like, ridiculous, in the intervening years between his report and Kelvin being on the station, they have actually come to realize that some of the stuff he said was probably true. Mm-hmm. They still might not believe the whole baby thing, um, but I think that is, at least some of it, they do... They, isn't seen as like the laughing stock that it once was because they do just say, ah, it's, he just hallucinated it all basically right. at the time. Um, it's interesting. I do not mind presenting Burton's story as this unsure dis- disputed thing. Um, and having that kind of be the Genesis for like not knowing what's real and what's not and whether or not we should believe his story versus like what we get in the book, which is like, no, there's a bunch of crazy stuff going on. We just don't understand any of it. Um, because in the book, we do have to sit and listen to Kelvin read page after page of like the history of solaristics. Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting, but I don't it would be tough to do in a movie. Right. And we'll talk more about it later, particularly in a movie in 1970. Because I think the way you have to do that is you have to show it like you have like if we're going to do that in the movie and, and we're going to do the sections where he's talking about mimoids and semi triads and all these crazy structures that are like the size of the Grand Canyon that do all these crazy things. I think we can't just sit and let him tell us about that. Right. We have to, like, see that stuff happening and maybe flash back to the moment when these things were being discovered or whatever. And with the technology at the time, I don't know how they possibly could have recreated these things in a way that was compelling. And so I think they just didn't. And we'll talk more about I have notes about that later, but I think that's what's going on here. And so they they took an interesting turn by just, uh, Burton's story is it's complicated it's so strange but i think that i think it's an interesting choice and i don't necessarily hate it um so after they watch burton's testimony um and i got the vibe from the movie that it was still considered like 
people didn't really believe it. Yeah, that is, and yeah. in the movie, that is true. Yeah. yeah. Um. So uh, he goes to see Kelvin, and they watch his testimony, and then after he leaves, he calls Kelvin um, to give him some more information and mentions that he later on found out that the child he saw while on Solaris was identical to the child of another man who had died while on Solaris. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, because that seems like pretty important to their understanding of Solaris. And I feel like he should have told someone. I think the idea is that he didn't tell anyone because they nobody believed him anyways, but he did this yeah. extra research. Um, So he doesn't, he doesn't tell that to Kelvin. I, I went and I couldn't find it. Kelvin finds out about the whole Barton thing because of Gabarian mm-hmm. leaves some notes for him, including these books, in le- including like references to some books. And he goes and reads Burton's report. Mm-hmm. And this was like basically Gabarian left him like a breadcrumb, like these people that are appearing, I think, are related to this baby thing that he saw. Okay. And so, like, Kelvin, like, puts that together on his own, kind of, about this story with the baby. But I, from my memory, it's never referenced that that baby was, in fact, the child of, I think his name's, like, Fenton. There's, there was a, another pilot with uh, Burton who got, who lost and died. Yeah. And got in an accident. And Burton is saying that this kid, it looks like his kid. Setting up the idea that the ocean is reading the right. thoughts of the people and creating people from their memories mm -hmm. or whatever i don't remember that ever happening in terms of him think finding out about this kid this baby looking like the child of this person i don't remember that detail i think they added that just to make it more clear that that's what's going on here Mm -hmm. um but it is a similar story of him sort of figuring out again he finds out about this this burton report like halfway through the book and reads it after i think i can't remember if it's before or after raya or hari shows up i think it's after but i'm not positive it might be right before and anyways, it's uh, I do I think the movie prepping us for the ocean copying existence, pe- existing people is like a change that I'm not a huge fan of mm-hmm. because I like the complete mystery that we get in the novel. It's we find out after Hari shows up that the ocean is crazy of all this stuff, like all the stuff about the memoids and the and, and the semi triads and all this stuff. We don't know any of that about mm-hmm. the ocean before. Hari shows up. We find all that stuff out afterwards. He just goes and sits in the library for hours with her. And they like, he like reads things to us. Like he reads them and we get to see what he's, you know, he narrates it to us basically. And they don't, they've never encountered human copies like the ones on the station other than potentially this baby. Right. And again, nobody believed that part. I think some of the other stuff eventually they're like, yeah, maybe. Cause again, there are memoids that copy stuff, but nobody had like a baby moving, like acting like a human. Like they're like, nah, but Gabarian found this report and was like, I think that's what is going on here, okay. essentially, without it's so many words uh, mm-hmm. in the book is what's, yeah. Ugh. It's it's such a, I got to tell you, everything, the, the movie is such, changes so many small things that it's so hard to, like, keep track of where, what mm-hmm. are differences and what aren't and stuff. It's, it's, oof, it's tough. I can relate. Yeah. It's even it's very difficult too because of the very specific sort of like sci-fi nature of this and like the there's so many little details mm-hmm. of like world building and stuff that it's like I don't remember if that was in the movie or not. Yeah, it's it's tough. And it also doesn't help that it was in Polish, so we're reading everything and <laughs> yeah. trying to write notes. 
Uh, so right before Calvin um, leaves to go to Solaris, we see him burn a bunch of his like old papers and things. Uh, does he do that? And is it because he like thinks he won't be coming back from Solaris? He does none of this in the book because it's not in the book, obviously, the part uh-huh. with him on Earth. Um, I'll talk more about this later uh, after we discuss the changes that they made in the movie to Kevin's initial... Kel- Kelvin's initial uh, motivation and like his character because he's not the same character or at least didn't read to me the mm-hmm. same character in the movie as he is in the book and we'll we'll talk more about that in a bit but the burning part is not because none of that okay. is uh, there was a line in the movie that I liked um, or I guess I at least liked the English translation of it um, as he is on his way to Solaris he is like talking to I guess mission control or yeah. whatever um, and he says, when is liftoff? And they say, you're already flying. Yeah. Uh, that line is in the book. It's right at the beginning. Uh, he, they, he says, when is liftoff? And they say, you're on your way, Kelvin. Good luck. That's the line in the in the, in the the book as opposed to what it is in mm-hmm. the movie. Now, who knows which translation is. These, are, th- right. these Polish filmmakers were speaking Polish, so maybe that line's closer to what the original should be. I don't know. And at the moment, or in the book, I took that more as a comment on, like, Kelvin's relative inexperience with space flight, because he's, like, a psychologist, mm-hmm. um, and maybe a comment on, like, the technology. Although in the movie, I think it could reasonably be read as Kelvin not actually going anywhere, potentially as a clue of him not going anywhere. We'll get back to it later, but if he's potentially on Solaris the whole time, I don't think that's the case. Because I think he goes to Earth to Solaris and then never leaves Solaris, I think is what we're meant to mm-hmm. get from the movie. But I was thinking about it. I was like, I wonder if that could be a hint or like some sort of small attempt at a clue to him never having gone anywhere. If he's like, when am I launching? And they're like, you're already. Yeah. You're, I don't know. Hmm. You're already flying. But I think it is more just likely just like because he's not he's not an astronaut. I mean, he right. he's, has training, but he's not like an astronaut by trade. Uh, or a pilot or whatever. Um, is there nobody around when he does arrive on Solaris? And does he immediately trip over his shoelaces? Uh, yeah. And this is one of the things that the movie, I think, nails really well. Um, things are a complete mess when he arrives. The station is like in complete disrepair. There's like stuff all over the floors and there's mm-hmm. nobody around. Um, and he just like follows arrows into the station, essentially. Um, no one greets him or anything. It's a really ominous setup to like what the heck is going on here. And I think the movie captures that particular moment pretty well, uh, albeit coming 45 minutes into the movie. But what uh, he doesn't stumble over his shoelaces, but there are mentions of like there being stuff all over the floor. So it does he he stumbles over his shoelaces well he stumbles and then he immediately ties his boot oh okay so So i I assumed he like tripped over his and that's possible because there is like in the in the book there's descriptions of there's like oil and stuff on the floor so Mm -hmm. like i i missed him stumbling but i was like maybe it could be like he slips on some oil or something that's on the floor but if he ties his shoes and i don't know um but it is in general that scene uh kind of perfectly captures what i envisioned of the uh okay of the book So once Kelvin is on Solaris and he is kind of um, getting the lay of the land, he goes to, is it Gibrarian? Gibrarian, Gibrarian, I'm not sure which pronunciation. He goes to that man's room. I think they say Gibrarian in the movie. Gibrarian? Or Gibrarian? I don't know. Um, Anyway, sorry. So he goes to his room and um, pasted to the door 
is a very creepy, like, childlike drawing of, like, a stick figure, but, like, a Blair Witch kind of stick <coughs> figure. Yeah, it almost and it, looks like it has a it noose It looks like something. it has a noose around its neck, and it's it's labeled, and the subtitles helpfully translated it for me as human being, which I found utterly terrifying. Uh, yeah. So is any of that in the book? I went back and looked for this. I could not find it. Uh, if I, I went back to the moment where he goes into Gabarian's room and mm-hmm. I didn't see any reference to it unless I'm just blanking on it completely. So I don't think it's in the book. I'm also not sure what it would be meant to represent in the book or what it would be from. There are allusions in the book to Sartorius's visitor potentially being a guest or whatever, potentially being a child. Like we never see Sartorius's mm-hmm. guest in the, we never see anybody's other than the, uh, Gabarians. We never see um, Snow's snouts or Sartorius's guests. We see like hints of them, flashes a hand or whatever, but like we never actually see them. In the movie, we see Sartorius's guests, and it seems to be a little person, yeah, or a dwarf. I don't, I don't know exactly. There's like a second of them. They run out of the room, uh, the lab, and but in the book, we hear like feet, little feet running, and he thinks it might be a. He doesn't know what's going on in the lab. It's very creepy. Yeah, it's um, real creepy. And so I was like, maybe it could be that like, but, but again, in the movie, it seems to not be a kid. It seems to be a little, I don't know. So I don't know what that would be. Um, I'm not sure. The only other thing I could think is that maybe in the movie, Gabarian's guest is since it is like a a younger white girl, maybe she's meant to be young, like, or a childlike or something. Cause there is a moment in the movie where she's like, pestering him during his recording and there's something similar to that in the book kind of uh and i'm wondering if she's supposed to be like a little younger either younger or potentially like i don't know i have no idea but so i don't know what that's from and i don't remember it from the book i'll just say that it is very creepy though in the movie yeah it didn't really pan out but no very creepy um so after uh ocean hari shows up Hari from Solari. Mm-hmm. Hari from Solari. Um, she shows. So the first one shows up, and she's like, she's got this sweet 1970s dress on, mm-hmm. and she's trying to take it off, and she can't get it off, and she asks Kelvin for help, um, and he undoes a tie that appears to do nothing. Yeah, and he's like, okay, hang on, and goes get goes and gets scissors and like starts to cut the dress off of her. Is that from the book? Yes, it is. Uh, It's one of the things that he finds that is so, like, off about Mm -hmm. her initially. Her dress doesn't actually have fasteners. He goes and he looks at it, and it has, like, the illusion of, I think it's buttons. He's like, there's no buttons or no zippers, but it, like, looks like it should have some sort of fasteners, but it doesn't. And so that was the movie. And I actually thought the movie did that pretty well of having this laced up part that doesn't. I didn't get what that was supposed to mean. It has this laced up part that doesn't do anything. And I think the idea being that the ocean doesn't understand clothing but right. it's recreating these things without understanding the purpose of like the right. fastener part. So it can part. copy how it looks but it doesn't understand the actual function of Yeah, it, it doesn't understand the function sense. so he ends up just cutting it off with scissors okay. so that she can put on like a spacesuit or whatever or like a nor- like yeah, he put I think she puts on like a spacesuit. Yeah, so that is that is actually exactly what happens in the uh in the in the book. He also during that moment notices her little puncture mm-hmm. wound which we find out in the movie or in the book, we find out at that time why that's there. Uh, in the movie, we don't find out until considerably later. Right. Um, and we'll talk more about that later. 
Uh, so he helps her put on her spacesuit and then <laughs> takes her and puts her in a shuttle and just launches her into space. Yeah. That seems like a waste of a shuttle. Yeah. He does, in fact, do that in the book. Uh, exactly the same thing. It's pretty much identical other than a few details. Uh, and I kind of had it in movie nailed it. Primarily, the, the biggest change is that he... <laughs> After he gets her to the shuttle and puts her in there, um, she starts freaking out and trying to break out uh, and like it starts shaking. It says, as I was tightening the last screw but one, I felt a vibration a vibration in the three pronged clamp which held the base of the shuttle. I thought I must have loosened the support in my overeager handling of the heavy spanner, but when I stepped back to take a look, I was greeted by a spectacle which I hope I shall never have to see again. The whole vehicle trembled, shaken from the inside as though by some superhuman force. Not even a steel robot could have imparted such a convulsive tremor to an eight-ton mass, and yet the cabin contained only a frail, dark-haired girl. So, like, that's the only part that we don't see, which I thought mm -hmm. would have been really creepy, because that is one of the things that the movie, the book does is establish, and the movie does it eventually, uh, very early, that she has, like, superhuman strength. Mm -hmm. There's an interaction that is not in the uh, movie that I had in better in the, in the book that I'll just mention now, where when she first shows up, she, like, accidentally slash kind of on purpose, like, knocks him across the room. Oh, interesting. Um, and he's like very, it's like, oh my God, okay. And then he kind of realizes he probably won't be able to hurt her in that moment. So he's, his thing is like, I'll put her in the shuttle and just leave her in there. Um, he does launch her. I, I got the vibe in the book that it wasn't his initial intention to shoot her into space, but rather to just lock her in there and leave her there. But mm -hmm. then it starts shaking and freaking out and he panic launches her into space. At least that was the vibe I got. Um, from the book, it could have been his plan the whole time, but I'd have to reread it to make sure I couldn't tell to me. It read like he was just going to leave her in there, uh -huh. um, and not launch her into space or into orbit. But when she starts like shaking it and it feels like it's going to like break out of it or whatever, he like, Oh shoot. And like launches her. Yeah. And the same thing happens where he does get, a. Uh, uh, get burned because he's in the bay and that's that's that that's why i think he's gets panic or he, he panic launches her because he gets burned by the exhaust from the thing because he does it from inside the launch bay mm -hmm. um which snow or snout makes a joke about him later but we'll get to that so yeah he does the exact same thing he launches her into orbit yeah i wish they would have left the thing about her like making him fly across the room because yeah like to me watching the movie it seemed like she showed up and like while I grant that it would be pretty terrifying to be visited by the corporeal copy of your dead wife. Yeah. It kind of felt like he went from like zero, zero to 100. 11 with yeah. no warning. Yeah. There's also, and I'm, there's some of these things I'm just, that are in better in the book later, but they make sense to talk about here. There's another thing that he notices the movie does an okay job, I think, of expressing his like horror and revulsion at this at her uh, when she first shows up because he he's so taken aback. But he like he he just notices so many things are wrong about her uh -huh. that he's like very just like scared and doesn't understand what this is. And like her feet, because she has bare feet, her feet are like completely smooth. He says like a baby's oh. or whatever, like they they haven't been used. You know what I mean? And he's like, that's really weird. And there's all these little things that like add up and like really put him on edge. And then also, yeah, she does like knock him across the room. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of oh, he also tries to drug her at one point, to, like uh, put her. He puts like a bunch of sleeping pills in a in a glass of water, and it's like here, drink this. And she does, and they just don't affect her. Mm. And he's like, so there's an L, there is an escalation in the 
book that is not present in the movie where he does try like to drug her first and snout in the movie makes a joke about that he's like what did you try else did you try first drugging her or anything and or like poison or anything um and he actually does kind of try that in the book they just didn't include that in the movie And I think there is the added escalation in the in the book of her physical prowess, which we aren't really sure of in the movie at this right. point, because it isn't until later that we see her doing like superhuman things. So, um, so he launches Hari number one into space, and then uh, another Hari shows up, and there's a visual in the movie of she keeps like stacking her shawls on the chair and mm-hmm. i was wondering if that was something from the book the shawl thing is not because she's not wearing a shawl in the book uh but there are multiple dresses um she he does the dress that he cut off her previously is there when the second one shows up mm-hmm. um i think it, but it's just mentioned i think the movie the with the shawl on the chair and the focus of it was better done in the movie i had it and better in the movie i think it's kind of mentioned in like this is kind of mentioned in the book but there's some extra dramatic weight with the way it's kind of revealed and shown in the movie that just feels more like off-putting. It's mm-hmm. just like, oh, okay, this is yeah. Um, and again, it is it's from the book. That was definitely pulled from the book. It's just a slight a slight tweak on it that I think's done a little better in the movie. I really thought when they showed those two shawls on the chair that he was gonna keep trying to get rid oh, yeah. of her and like copies would keep showing up and we would just see this gradual yeah. like pile of shawls. Yeah. But it was really just two. No, yeah. He he well part of that is he's helped out by the other people on the station who Snow and Snout in particular does explain to him like they just keep coming back. Like okay. yeah. you can't really do anything about it. Like you can get rid of her, but she'll just come back again. Um and you, you already kind of mentioned this, um, but does Hari hulk her way through the door of his bedroom yes uh that is one of the things that's in present in both the movie and the book is that she can't stand to be apart from him and she expresses that in the movie several times but it's also a a big part of the book is that she literally can't like whenever he's apart from her she like loses her mind and like Mm -hmm. she she can't remember what happens in those moments like when he talks to her afterwards she's like i don't i remember you leaving the room and then now i'm here bloody or whatever um and uh, she does. He does go out the door and hold it and kind of shut it behind him. And he doesn't know at this point that this is like a big issue for her. Uh, and it happens a little earlier in the book than it does in the movie. And uh, she tries to get out to him through the door. And it's literally he's not even holding the door shut or anything. It's just it's a push. And she's trying to pull it. Oh, (laughs) because she doesn't understand how doors work. Right. And she's trying to pull the door open and can't get it open. It ends up just ripping the door apart uh, and slicing herself up in the process and like bleeding everywhere and everything. But the movie, I thought, did a very good job because it is a horrifying scene where he just like it starts shaking and bending and like Mm -hmm. and and she does. And this is one of the things it does in the movie. She starts making this like non-human, which is described in the book whenever she goes into this like you know freak like out state. state it's like it, yeah. the the no- noises she makes are not human they're like these weird huh. like you know like monstery sounds which would we which we do get in the scene in that scene in the movie it's it's wild but yeah i, I really i thought that was a movie nailed it for me they did a good job so uh now that there is a gaping shredded <laughs> hole in his door i i noticed that what he does to fix this rather than like move maybe a door from another room or Mm. move to a whole nother room since there appear to be a lot of empty ones. Um, What he does is hangs, I think it was a shirt. It looks like a shirt. Just like hangs it over the hole. 
Is that in the book? I don't recall this at all. I went back and looked and couldn't find anything. I honestly think the broken door just isn't mentioned again in the book because it's not really, like, important to Mm -hmm. what else is going on. Um, It's a nice little detail in the movie having, like, because it does also kind of work with the fact that he's just, he he ends up, you know, his mental state deteriorates over the course of the book. Um, And so, you know, the idea of him just, like, hanging up a a shirt kind of works for me, but I don't remember that being mentioned in the book at all, so... And I couldn't find anything about it when I went back to look. So fast forwarding a little bit, um, we get a little further on in the story and um, they're all gathered in the library celebrating Snout's birthday. Mm -hmm. And he makes a speech um, and there was one particular line that I wanted to know if it was from the book. Um, He says, we don't need other worlds. We need a mirror. So, yes, uh, it's one of the best speeches in the book, and I'm super glad they kept much of it uh, because, unfortunately, it's one of the few speeches that I really liked from the book that they did keep. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of great dialogue in this book, even if it is a bad translation that did not make its way into the movie, which was disappointing. This one did, and I'm glad. I want to do the reading, a little reading from this section because I think it is really good. Um, So their lead up to this in the book is that a sort of crazed snout is talking about the inner demons of man and the suppression of them, etc. And then Kelvin asks him uh, what this speech has to do with Solaris. And he says, it's almost as if you're purposefully refusing to understand. I've been talking about Solaris the whole time, solely about Solaris. If the truth is hard to swallow, it's not my fault. Anyhow, after what you've already been through, you ought to be able to hear me out. We take off into the cosmos ready for anything, for solitude, for hardship, for exhaustion, death. Modesty forbids us to say so, but there are times when we think pretty well of ourselves. And yet, if we examine it more closely, our enthusiasm turns out all to be a sham. We don't want to conquer the cosmos. We simply want to extend the boundaries of Earth to the frontiers of the cosmos. For us, such and such a planet is as arid as the Sahara, another as frozen as the North Pole, yet another as lush as the Amazon Basin. We are humanitarian and chivalrous. We don't want to enslave other races. We simply want to bequeath them our values and take over their heritage in exchange. We think of our ourselves as the knights of the holy contact this is another lie we are only seeking man we have no need of other worlds we need mirrors we don't know what to do with other worlds a single world our own suffices us but we can't accept it for what it is we are searching for an ideal image of our own world we go in quest of a planet of a civilization superior to our own but developed on the basis of a prototype of our own primeval past At the same time, there is something inside us which we don't like to face up to, from which we try to protect ourselves, but which nevertheless remains. Since we don't leave Earth in a state of primal innocence, we arrive here as we are in reality, and when the page is turned and that reality is revealed to us, that part of our reality which we would prefer to pass over in silence, then we don't like it anymore. I had listened to him patiently, but what on earth are you talking about? I'm talking about what we all wanted, contact with another civilization. Now we've got it, and we can observe through a microscope, as it were, our own monstrous ugliness, our folly, our shame. His voice shook with rage. <laughs> so, yeah. This is pretty good stuff. It's pretty good stuff, yeah. and there are parts of it in the, of that in the, in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like his big moment in the book, or one of them. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I, I love that scene. And there's a moment in the movie um, shortly after that scene where um, I think they say, like, 
the the fake gravity is going to reset or something yeah, like that. Yeah, well, he says that we're going to move or something, and yeah. the gravity will be offline for 30 seconds. Um, so there's 30 seconds of weightlessness, and everything is floating through the air. Is that from the book? No, it is not. Um, that is complete movie invention that does lead to a scene that I quite like uh, that I had for better in the movie, which is the weightless dance scene in the library amongst the paintings. I think it's really beautiful and haunting. And, it, yeah, it was not in the... In the movie or in the book at all, there was no. There's okay. no. They are. They have like a gravity, which is interesting because they're again they're not in space, right? Which they aren't in this movie either. Um, in the 2002 one, I watched the trailer. They are in space in that one. It's like a space station. This one is also in atmosphere, and in the book, it's described that the station is like a 1500 feet above the ocean basically Mm -hmm. or like 1500 meters or something so it's like you know a few thousand feet above the ocean and it but it moves around i guess it's possible that it similar like if it was going down closer to the ocean they would be like in a state of free fall and it would essentially be like zero gravity like Mm -hmm. that plane that does the you know the vomit comet thing where it goes like up and down in the sky and people can pretend to be like in weightless or whatever that's how they filmed apollo 13 i think anyways yeah it's a it's a cool scene and it's not in the book does hari drink liquid nitrogen uh and kill herself and then come back to life yes uh that is her first attempt at suicide when she starts to kind of come to terms with what she is i originally had this in better in the book because i thought the description was haunting uh and that was with how initially it played out in the movie but then as the scene went on i actually described decided no the movie kind of nailed it because the version of her resurrecting is kind of equally haunting and great okay in the book it's just real quick Crisp, Chris, a harsh gasp. I took her hand and the answering pressure made my bones creak. Then her face screwed up with agony and she lost consciousness again. Her eyes turned up and a guttural rattle tore at her throat and her body arched with convulsions. It was all I could do to keep her on the operating table. She broke free and her head cracked against a porcelain basin. I dragged her back and struggled to hold her down, but violent violent spasms kept jerking her out of my grasp. I was pouring with sweat and my legs were like jelly. When the convulsions abated, I tried to make her lie flat, but her chest thrust out to gulp at the air. Suddenly, her eyes were staring out at me from behind the fragile blood-stained mask of her face uh there's more but it goes on from there but it's it's wild and but but i thought the movie did actually a pretty good job Mm -hmm. um with the way she kind of resurrects yeah it was a, a an interesting scene yeah um does kelvin eventually tell hari that he's going to live there with her instead of going back to earth yeah uh originally though they do in the book plan to go to earth together like they're Mm -hmm. gonna just be together and go to earth but he kind of ultimately realizes that's not possible like snout kind of explains that and i think he mentions this in the movie that she can't leave solaris because she's like part of the ocean yeah yeah um and also kelvin realizes that even if she were able to leave that he's not going to be able to like smuggle her back to earth like this dead previously dead person (laughs) and like so he just ultimately is like well i guess i'm just gonna stay here then okay yeah Uh, So around uh, the end of the movie, everything is kind of coming to a head and Calvin seems a little bit like he's losing it and he runs around in his underwear. Is that from the book? I couldn't find any reference to him running around in his underwear at the end of the book. Um, The book, the end of this book is quite different from the movie. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that more here in a bit. Um, There is a scene early on where he's walking around in his underwear in his room before he gets in the shower but it's not i just yeah, i just so same. happened to stumble across that while i was looking for something else that it literally described him talk, walking around in his underwear and so it made me think of this but it's not at remotely the same time and i don't recall him stumbling around in his underwear at the end from 
from what I could find, but it's it's possible. Um, so my last question here, I, I kind of asked a million questions about the end of this movie. <laughs> we have so much to talk about about. You <laughs> seemed like equally perplexed yes. as we were watching it. Um, so, but they mention somewhere. Somebody mentions, I think, snout maybe that islands are starting to form in the Solaris Ocean. Uh huh. And then at the very end, Calvin is like on one of them. And it's like his dad's house, but then it pulls back and he's on Solaris. So, like, does he just live there now? <laughs> okay. So, uh, boy, we got we're gonna we're gonna get way more into this here shortly. But um, in the book, the ocean does go through some new unusual changes after Hari dies, mm-hmm. um, and they've been be- they've been they have been beaming Kelvin's brainwaves into the ocean for like weeks at this point in the book, like his encephalogram, which they mentioned in the movie. Uh, the islands isn't a new thing. As I mentioned earlier, right. these mimeo- mimoids or whatever and the asymmetriads and semi-triads and stuff, these islands have been a thing forever. Um, they, and they've been down there for kind of at least years, it seems like at this point, that has been a, a, an observed phenomenon. Um, in the book, there are some weird changes like it starts phosphorescing and like lighting up itself. And it also does this thing where it's like flying up into space. at to- Like it's kind of like disintegrating into space. Huh. And they're like not sure what any of this is and it's all like new and they're like, this is weird but they're also like he's there's a line in the book about how weird new things happen with the ocean every couple years it's just something else new weird we don't understand will happen um but the the idea the the island thing is not new um in the book does kelvin does at the end in fact go down to a memoid uh, as it is described in the book um or an island if you want to call it that and that is where the book ends but it's not some like twisty reveal of him thinking he's on earth or or it's seeming like he's on right. earth and then it's actually revealed to be Solaris. We just end with him on Solaris planning to go back to earth, but he goes down to the Island and that's where the book ends. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk more about that <laughs> in just a little bit. Cause it gets, there's a lot to break down there. <laughs> All right. It's time for lost in adaptation. Just show me the way to get out of here and I'll be on my way. Lost. Yes. Yes, and I want to get unlost as soon as possible. All right, you had some more questions here that uh, needed some clarification because you were a little lost. A little bit, so just a little. I'll do what I can. <laughs> All right, so my first question. Um, at the beginning of the movie, when they're watching Burton's testimony, now I didn't realize at first that older Burton and the, the guy testifying were the same person. I did not initially either. And so I thought they were watching something like current, like they were watching like right. a news report. Right. Um, but once I once that clicked into place, um, I was wondering how much time had passed between his testimony and them having to send Calvin to investigate what's going on at the station. Um, it, yeah, I hadn't noticed either because the, the the old age makeup is quite good. It was pretty good. Very yeah. good for uh, all things considered, especially for 1970. Very subtle. And so it, I assume it's been decades. That's the vibe in the book, if not longer in the book, because his his mission, I assume, was towards the beginning. Like I said, I think they've learned a lot more in intervening mm-hmm. um, study of the of Solaris over the years. Uh, and so, I mean, in the movie, it looks like it's been at least twenty years, if not yeah, more. Like based on the yeah, based on how they've aged him, if, we, if if not more. And I would say the b- book is probably similar, if not even more than that. Um, but again, they don't go into the, any of the details in the movie of any of the other stuff that mm. they've learned. 
So. Um, Follow-up question that I don't have written down here. So I know we don't meet Burden in the book. No, we only ever get the... he just reads his report. Do yeah. we know if he's still alive? I don't know. Okay. Um, I I don't think it's mentioned okay. that I, I recall. Curious. Um, now another thing that confused me with this was that during this testimony, it seemed like they were saying that they were going to shut down <clears throat> the Solaris exploration. They were considering it. Yeah, yeah um, but Burton wants them to continue, and so does Professor Messenger, but nobody like wants to take them seriously. But then clearly the mission does actually continue because there are still people like yes. on the station. Yeah. So can you explain that situation to me? No, not so much with the Burton thing. Um, I don't recall during Burton's there's again, it's I'm, I'm going to have a tough time with some of these details. I, I, I couldn't find I don't remember them wanting to shut it down during Burton's. Like little trial, not trial. It's like a um, a debriefing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember anybody saying they wanted to shut it down then. And they haven't. But th- there is a growing in the book. There is a growing. We get over the course of the like history books and stuff. Kelvin reads this. There is a growing sort of uh, malaise with solarist studies as they think that it's become more and more futile and there's they're like we're, we're, it's, we've been doing this for in the book i think like a hundred years mm-hmm. and we still haven't learned anything really like yeah, not, not really not really getting anywhere not really getting anywhere so there's sort of this growing sort of dissatisfaction with the whole project and so i think that's what they're trying to instill that even from the beginning potentially there was and that again i don't think burton's is like the beginning i don't know mm-hmm. how i can't remember how far into like their studies of solaris the whole burton incident takes place but i think i think they so but but it continues into current day because the in the movie and this is the big change i wanted to talk about in relation to this the movie they make a change where kelvin's intent kelvin's mission going there is to assess whether or not to continue the the station right um and that is not in the book uh he it, it at least not that i gleaned in the book he's just going there to be part of the team and and study stuff there's no mention of him potentially shutting it down there is talk towards the end of whether or not after this whole incident takes place they discuss like should we keep this going should we Mm -hmm. send a report to have it shut down like what should we do there's that discussion towards the end of the book but that is not his initial mission going in and i think making that change and setting him up as sort of the skeptic going into the situation kind of works and being the skeptic against Burton's story. He doesn't really buy Burton's story, mm-hmm. even though he's sitting there talking to Burton, he kind of thinks he's crazy or whatever. Um, and I think it kind of works for his overall arc, but it is very different than what we get in the book. Like it completely can change his motivation in the book. He believes he's still going in. He still believes in the possibility of quote unquote contact, which is like, this this mythical like capital C contact that they talk in the book constantly is a major theme about whether or not they'll ever actually be able to exchange meaningful communication or anything with this alien life form. And ultimately he thinks it's a po- impossible after a while, but then kind of gets back to being unsure at the end and the movie, he goes in skeptical of how useful like any of this is. And I think that's illustrated, like I said earlier by him burning some of his old thesis and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of works. I like that change with the, with this change to Kelvin's character of making him like this nihilistic solarist. Uh, he like, doesn't see the merit of some of his older work potentially going in because he doesn't think anything's come from it over the years and he's not sure anything will. Um, and then I think 
the idea is that this experience kind of fuzzies that whole thing for him in the film. It's a little, it just, it's a very subtle, but it plays out differently. And his motivations are completely different in the book. And so it's a very interesting change that I could go either way on. I do not hate what the movie did, making him the skeptic going into the situation. I don't know if it necessarily delivers on it super hard, Mm -hmm. but it is an interesting change. But there is a general talk in the book of whether or not, especially during the like the like history book reading parts that he does, there's tons of debate that he kind of recaps for us about whether or not this mission is worth it, if anything's going to come of it ever. And like there's like all these he recounts all these different like warring like academic factions that like some of them think it's impossible. You know, Mm -hmm. he kind of goes through and breaks down. That's like a whole section of the book that's just not in the movie is like sort of the the exploration of the uh, the like scientific culture surrounding this whole thing. Okay. Um, there's little touches of it in the dialogue in the film here and there where they talk about like at the beginning, Burton talks about like what the goal of science is and blah, blah, blah. But that's a much bigger theme in the book right. that I don't think the movie yeah, really does a lot with. It, it kind of confused me in the movie because like narratively to me, it seems like it would make more sense to have Burton being like, no, you need to shut this down. And everybody else being like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. We're going to keep doing it. He, he thinks there's something going on here right. is what we're getting from him in the movie. And, and they should explore it. And they're like, no, you didn't see anything. There's nothing. We've okay. been trying all this stuff. Nothing's ever happened. You were hallucinating. There's nothing going on. And he's like, no, I saw something. I gotcha. So jumping forward a little bit, uh, uh, shortly after Calvin gets to the station, uh, he is investigating Gabrarian's room, mm-hmm. and he finds a tape, which I'm assuming this is like the the VHS prediction. Yeah, that I found the fun fact about. Yeah, which it's not in the in the book. It is a an audio tape. Mm-hmm. He doesn't find a videotape, but. Yeah, they have video phones. Yeah, he has like, and yeah, I have a note about that later. They have like video chat, and they, and they do in the book, which they actually use more in the book. While mm-hmm. he's on the station, he has like a three-way phone call with Sartorius and Jabrarian oh, on okay. like their their video call thing. Oh, they have a Zoom. Yeah, awesome. they literally do have a Zoom meeting, and two of them cover their cameras. They like don't <laughs> turn their cameras on. Jabarian and Sartorius don't turn their cameras on. He just looks at a black screen oh, that has like a line dividing it, and he's like, "They they're clearly covering their cameras or something." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but he finds this tape and pops it in and watches a few minutes of Gabarian talking about um, like his experiences thus far, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden he stops it and like pops it out of the player and I wanted um I wanted some input on this because it seemed to me like the way he reacted to it it seemed like he got scared by something and didn't want to keep watching it but I wasn't sure what freaked him out I don't know uh, there's two instances of him watching the tape in the in the story one is in his room and one is in Gabarian's room when he mm-hmm. first finds it and I believe in Gabarian's room the reason he stops it is because he hears someone outside because this is a scene that happens in the book 
Um, I don't believe he's listening to the tape here in the book, but he is snooping around in Gabarian's room looking for stuff, and he hears somebody walk up to the door. Okay. And and I think this is that same moment in the book, and I had this in the movie, nailed it, because he runs over to the door, and this does happen in the movie, and he grabs the handle and holds it shut, and the per- it's really creepy in the book, um, because you just hear somebody walk up, they don't say anything, he doesn't say anything, he runs over to the door, and the door snob starts moving, and he grabs it. And it, and it, like, tries to open, but then doesn't, and then the person just walks away. Okay. And he's, like, doesn't know who it was. He never finds out if it was Snow, Snout or, uh, the you know, the companion, the guest or whatever. Doesn't Has no idea. And that's what happens in the movie. So I'm assuming at that time, I think he turns it off because he hears somebody coming. Okay. The later in his, off, in his room, when he's watching it again, I don't remember what happens or why he turns it off. I, I don't remember. I'm sorry, because I don't remember from the movie, and he I, he doesn't... I think he only watches it once in the movie. No, I'm like 99% sure he turns it on again in his room later and watches more of it. I don't remember I that. I could have swore, but anyways. Um. All right, so I didn't have too much trouble with like the middle of this movie. I mean, mm-hmm. it was weird, but I didn't have a ton of trouble with it. But then at the end, everything went super haywire. Oh, yes. Um, and I, I could have asked a million questions mm-hmm. about the end of this movie. Um, but they, uh, he goes into like a fever dream at one point, um, or maybe this was before that. I don't remember. At some point, Snout says, oh, your encephalogram really helped. But I didn't recall them actually doing that in the movie. Like they just talked about it. But then they also say something about the neutrino dissolving device, which we also didn't see them do. They just talked about it. And then also when he wakes up, Hari is just gone. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> the, they did the encephalogram. This is, we just never see any of it in the movie. This is all basically what happens in the book here. Um, they spend weeks, they do this encephalogram. We actually see him. They put a big, they put a thing, sensors on his head and they read his brainwave in the book. We see mm-hmm. this whole scene happen. Uh, they get like the, the tape print out and then they start beaming it down into the ocean. Um, and they spend weeks doing this and they're like traveling around, trying different locations, sending it down. Um, and during this whole time, he's just kind of spending time with Hari. And they do ultimately think that this encephalogram that they sent, which they also did in the movie, we just, they never showed us that they just, mentioned again at the end that they did it um after they mentioned once earlier proposing doing it they think that this is ultimately what may have caused the change in the ocean to stop like creating the visitors after hari does okay die but they don't actually really know because nobody can really know anything about the ocean also so hari had snow help her kill herself that's what happened to her uh, and, and this does was using the anti-neutrino annihilator device they mentioned in the movie several times. Okay. In the book, they're mentioned, it's specifically, they have two plans. One is, let's send your brainwave down into the, into the ocean, and maybe that'll stop things. Mm-hmm. And they have this other plan, which is, also, we're going to build this anti-neutrino device, because these the guests are, like, made of neutrinos, and they're not atom. They're they're made of a sub subatomic particle. It's slightly different, but we can make this device that will like dissolve neutrino fields, make them unstable, which will like dissolve these people essentially, okay. like vaporize that them. That sounds horrifying. Like vaporize them basically. Yeah. And he doesn't want them to do that. And he actually lies to them and tells them. Uh, Kelvin lies to them and tells them if you you if you make this device, it might blow up the station because he mm-hmm. doesn't want them to do it because he doesn't want them to kill Hari. And they go ahead with it anyways. 
Okay. And they keep doing it and keep working on this anti-neutrino device and they keep it secret from him and we he like thinks they may be he like hears stuff at night but so there's a whole lot more with that in the book of this whole that right. whole end section. Ultimately though, they make the device and then Hari goes and talks to Snow one night while he's sleeping and then the next she leaves the next day or that night and she leaves and then he wakes up and snows there with the note like in the movie and he goes she okay she killed herself okay or she had me kill her I, I felt like <laughs> i felt like he woke up and snow was now it was like all this all this stuff that we did not actually see happen yeah and i was like what <laughs> We see a lot more of it in the book. We'll talk more in, in, in a minute about like the whole thing with him being sick in the movie mm-hmm. and what was going on with that, because that's not what happens in the book, and I'll talk more about that. She In the book, she actually drugs him oh, and okay. knocks him out. She He tried earlier in the movie to drug him with sleeping pills or her with sleeping pills, and it didn't work. She does it to him here, and he so he gets knocked out, and that's when he comes to the next morning, and she has used the anti-neutrino device to vaporize herself. So... I think that's what my next question is about. Because I had a question. There's the uh, the trippy montage yes. where I thought he was supposed to be sick, maybe. Because oh, it kind of yeah, seemed like he was having a fever dream. And there were, like, multiple Haris. And then, like, his mom was there. <laughs> yeah. And she, like, like Hari turned into his mom. Um, and yeah, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't sure. Like, I was like, is he sick? Is this supposed to be, like, a lot of time passing? What is happening? Yeah. So we're going to get more into this in a second, but he doesn't get sick in the movie uh, like he does or in the book like he does in the movie. Um, And I'll discuss potentially why I think the movie, why he's sick in the movie here shortly. Um, He does get drugged and and wakes up like hungover, essentially, Mm -hmm. um, in the book. And that's when she's killed herself. And and. He does have before any of this happens in the final weeks leading up to before Hari kills herself. He does have these like really weird, trippy existential nightmares in the book. And I think that's what this movie is doing here. They don't have anything to do with his mom or anything. Uh, Movie kind of nailed it in that they are these super weird, like existential dread type of things. Like in the book, he's like dreaming about like, well, a, a woman he's never met shows up and then. I'll see if I can give me one. Second. I'll try to find just a little bit of it because it's he literally has a note saying that he describes one of these nightmares and then says that that that's the only one I could even begin to describe because mm-hmm. the others were much more complicated. But even this one is a face appears before me that I've never seen until now at once mysterious and known. I strain to meet its gaze, but I cannot impose any direction on my own. And we discover one another mutually beyond any effort of will in an absorbed silence. I have become alive again. And I feel as if there is no limitation on my powers. This creature, a woman stays near me and we are motionless. The beating of our hearts combines and all at once out of the surrounding void where nothing exists or can exist steals a presence of indefinable, unimaginable cruelty. The cares that created us and which wrapped us in a golden cloak becomes the crawling of innumerable fingers. Our white naked bodies dissolve into a swarm of black creeping things. And I am, we are a mass of glutinous coiling worms, endless and in that infinity. No, I am infinite and I howl soundlessly begging for death and for an end. But simultaneously, I am dispersed in all directions and my grief expands in a suffering more acute than any waking state, a pervasive scattering pain, piercing the distant blacks and reds, hard as rock and ever increasing a mountain of grief visible in the dazzling light of another word world so it's like very trippy weird yeah like existential dread dreams 
but they're not. That woman could be his mom. You could maybe glean that potentially because yeah. I don't know if he knows his mom. Again, we don't have any of that backstory in this book, so I don't know. But yeah. Uh, and then, so speaking of the movie, the whole dream sequence with his mom in this movie is kind of incomprehensible. I have, <laughs> I don't think it's taken anywhere from the text. Potentially, like I said, that part with the woman he feels like he knows but doesn't, maybe that is a very opaque allusion to his mom. I don't know. This did feel like something the director was infusing into this story here mm -hmm. uh, very clearly. Like, she's, like, cleaning his hand at one yeah. point and, like, washing his hand, and it felt very, like, you know, sort of... Uh, messianic sort of prophety like washing his sins i don't know yeah. like I, could you, it's black and white in this moment so you couldn't tell if it was like blood or dirt or what it was washing off his hand you know it's like see like washing away his sins i have more thoughts on this whole dream thing i thought about it for a long time trying to like suss out <laughs> what i thought the movie was getting at at this ending because it is very weird um and very like hard to parse yeah um, and very freudian very freudian very hard to parse i do think i have a guess. I, I, I will, I'll get to it here uh, uh, shortly and better at the end of Better in the Book, which is where we're at now. So let's get into it better in the book. You like to read? Oh, yes. I love to read. What do you like to read? Everything. So I think one of the things that I was worried about most, and it is a problem, is that the actual visual depiction of Solaris in the movie is disappointing because of the time period mm -hmm. also uh tarkovsky leaned into that by just not really making it as big of a thing i think they like they also kind of work some of the limitations into the story like the first time we see it like burton says he recorded video of solaris like with the things he was seeing and it's like just clouds yeah and they're like and i'm like and at first i thought that was just their attempt at depicting solaris i was like oh no um, but then they get back and the guys are like, it was just clouds. What did you? And, and he's like, oh, I guess it was the mist I saw was obscuring the camera. So like you couldn't see it. I'm like, OK, that's a way to do it, I guess. Um, I think ultimately still this technology problem persists because in the book, the ocean is such an important character. Like and the things we find out about it and the grandiose descriptions of this wild alien thing. They're so important to creating the world, at least to me. And again, I think they were just like, OK. We just won't make that the focus because we can't do it. Right. And I think also Tarkovsky was just more interested in the quote unquote human part of it, mm -hmm. um, which I get. But it's also one of the things that I found so fascinating was the like weird alien because that is such a huge part of this book is the idea of contact and like contemplating contemplating like uniquely and actual alien entities as opposed to like humanoid like things that we call right. aliens in most in most things this the descriptions we get in the book of this world are so evocative and just like awe inspiring that it's disappointing not to see any of that in the and again i get why but it was something that i was prepared for but still disappointed that <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get of any of in the in the movie um so this is a really cool little detail is in Burton's uh, when he was reading through Burton's testimonial, he gets to a point where they uh, they're like, go on describing. He gets to a point where he's going to tell him about something that he saw. He says, well, my brain couldn't have created what I saw. I'll never believe that my brain wouldn't have been capable of it. 
and they say, go on, describe what it was. And he says, before I do so, I would like to know how the statements I've already made will be interpreted. Question, what does that matter? Burton, for me, it matters very much indeed. I have said that I saw things which I shall never forget. If the commission recognizes, even with certain reservations, that my testimony is credible and that a study of the ocean must be undertaken, I mean a study oriented in the light of my statements, then I'll tell everything. But if the commission considers that it is all delusions, then I refuse to say anything more. Why? Burton, because the contents of my hallucinations belong to me, and I don't have to give an account of them, whereas I am obliged to give an account of what I saw on Solaris. Which is a fun, I like that yeah. little moment of him like, look, I know what I'm saying sounds crazy. I'll keep going, but if you're not going to believe me, I don't have to tell you anything else. <laughs> it's, it's a great little moment, and it's, I'm surprised that, because a lot of his testimonial is in the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that that little, like, repartee between him and the... Uh, you know, the powers that be wasn't in there because I thought it was a great moment when I was reading it. Um, I thought the introduction of like the three scientists on the like news special that the aunt and the dad are watching on Earth is kind of like a cheap way and unnecessary to mm-hmm. be like, oh, there's three people on the on the station currently, Bert or, you know, J- Gabarian, Sartorius and Snot, Snout. And it's like we can just meet them. Right. In the book, we don't have any setup for that. He just lands there and he kind of yeah. tells us that he's once that he he knows Gabarian going in. He doesn't know the other two, but like he's met and worked with Gabarian before. Um, and so he's looking forward to seeing him or whatever. But, he, you know, we just kind of meet him as we meet them in the book. I don't think you need that. I mean, there's not very many of them. No, it's. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and we don't get much information. It's just, I don't know, it felt unnecessary. So uh, Kelvin launching from Prometheus to Solaris, there is an element of this that I have in the movie Nailed It, but there are some details missing explicitly in the book when it starts and they're putting him in the capsule. There's some descriptions of the sounds he's hearing and stuff that very much reminded me of the videos you see of when they're like putting people into the uh, like Apollo capsules and mm-hmm. stuff that... Um, that worked really well for me in setting up the, it's like the first page of the book or second page or something when he's like getting into this capsule to go. And it reminded me of like the Apollo missions. Uh, and whereas when he's going there in the movie, we just jump right into him and en route. Right. Um, yeah, but they, he, we actually have him getting inside the capsule as the very first paragraph of the book. Um, and there's like the sounds and the stuff described and is evocative. Um, I like the slow burn mystery of what happened to Gabarian in the book. Like in the movie, Snout just comes right out and is like, he committed suicide. Like yeah. in their first interaction. In the book, it's, uh, he's like, where's Gabarian? And he's like, he had an accident. And you don't even necessarily know he's dead right away, but it is kind of implied. And then as he's leaving, he looks back in and realizes Snout has blood on his hands. And mm-hmm. he's like, what the hell is going on? And it, But it's left more ambiguous mm-hmm. um and 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 also snout is more <sighs> mysterious and like eccentric in the book than he even is in the movie which is pretty eccentric like he's at parts in the book he's saying he's like who are you what are you doing here and kelvin's like i'm chris kelvin i'm the sec- I, I was supposed to and then he's like oh yeah like it's this weird like interaction that's very surreal and and it just really builds like the unease and the tension early yeah. on in the book um and it's something i talked to shelby about because she listened to the recording of it the first half of this book is just a straight up mystery horror thriller it's fantastic and i think that's what the one of the things the movie loses mm-hmm. is by giving us 45 minutes on earth and stuff beforehand just jumping right in and i mentioned it earlier right into this mystery of him arriving on the station it's 
this there's no way this couldn't wouldn't be if made today like a thriller suspense film yeah at least for part of it the second half does get more into the like sci-fi philosophical stuff uh, uh and like especially once hari shows up but while there's well the first 100 i don't know 60 70 pages while he's figuring things out are just like hauntingly creepy like and like viscerally so and i have some details that we'll get to here, here in the in a second his room in the book is like this mismatch of like equipment and stuff all over the place similar to the rest of the station it is like equally a mess there's like buckets of equipment sitting around and boxes of like books and stuff everywhere um uh, and again i i it's and there's like he finds this box of tools in his bathroom that are like all melted and he's like these shouldn't if you threw these into like a volcano they wouldn't melt i don't mm-hmm. understand that never even comes back in the book but again it's just setting up this like what is going on right. here talking kind of atmosphere and I, I think that's another thing. And I, I, his his, uh, his room looks fine in the movie, but it is very like kind of clean compared to the yeah, rest. Yeah, it doesn't of the... look like anybody's been in there. No, in the and, movie. And in the book, you get the feeling that people have been like storing stuff in his room or something. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like a bunch of stuff everywhere. Like they're the whoever the previous resident, you know, didn't clean it up before they left. Um, and then so I have to talk about this. So we talked about earlier, Gabarian's uh, guest. Uh, in the book who's a black woman who he, he follows she walks down the hallway same thing in the movie is woman walks down the hallway and walks into the freezer room mm-hmm. where uh, Gabarian's body is stored but they don't do in the movie she just like disappears he walks in there and looks at Gabarian's body and then she's just gone like yeah we never see her never again. see her again in the in the book uh he goes in, he looks at Gabarian's body, and then he says, or then, and then it goes on, as I let the canvas fall, and this is the canvas covering Gabarian's body, as I let the canvas fall, I noticed, peeping out from beneath the folds at the foot, five round shiny objects like black pearls ranged in order of size. I stiffened with horror. What I had seen were the round pads of five bare toes. Under the shroud, flattened against Gabarian's body, lay the black woman. Slowly, I pulled back the canvas. Her head covered in frizzy hair, twisted up in little tufts, was rested in the hollow of one massive arm. Her back glistened with skin stretched taut over the spinal column. The huge body gave no sign of life. I looked again at the soles of her naked feet. They had not been flattened or deformed in any way by the weight which they had to carry. Walking had not calloused the skin, which was unblemished as that of her shoulders. With a far greater effort than it had taken to touch Gabarian's corpse, I forced myself to touch one of the bare feet. Then I made a second bewildering discovery. This body, abandoned in a deep freeze, this apparent corpse, lived and moved. The woman had withdrawn her foot like a sleeping dog when you try to take its paw. She'll freeze, I thought confusedly, but her flesh had been warm to the touch, and I even imagined I had felt the regular beating of her pulse. I backed out and fled. So that reveal of him, like, looking at his face and then and then realizing, oh, God, there's a second body laying here, and then touching it, and it moves a little bit. Oh, it's so creepy. That's a missed opportunity. Right? <laughs> it's so creepy. It's so creepy. Um, and just the dawning of realizing what he's looking at. And then, yeah, he touches and the description in the book specifically of moving like a dog when you touch their paw was so, ah! <laughs> I was like, Oh no, <laughs> so good. Um, but then after that, we never see, he never goes back in that room or anything. So I also mentioned earlier, but I like only ever seeing Gabarian's visitor. We don't ever see Sartorius's or snouts. Mm-hmm. We see glimpses. We see like, we think, uh, Sartorius's guest has like, wears like a straw hat. 
but we don't know. And it, and we hear them. It sounds like a kid or a little person or something. He doesn't know, but he never see him. Um, and I think in the movie, the like scene with the little person running out of the lab is just kind of strange and doesn't add much other than just being like, whoa, like a weird yeah. gag. Yeah, well, that part was a little weird to me because Kelvin, like, doesn't react to it at all. Yeah, he also doesn't react to it in any way. Like, I would be like, what the fuck? Who the fuck is that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is strange. And yeah, because in the book, he just hears things. Right. And but he doesn't. Yeah, it's it's it, it, and he kind of catches glimpses, but and which they do a little bit with Snout. He like as he's leaving Snout's room, he catches a glimpse of like a second head or a hand mm-hmm. or something, um, which is still not as good as noticing the blood on Snout's hand. But anyways, uh, yeah, we don't ever see any of the other. It's just like it's again, it's a thing that like kind of imagined what's seen is often better or not seen is often better than what you actually see. And yes. I think in this instance, the pitter pattering of little feet and not being sure what's going on. And Sartorius never <laughs> explaining anything is, is much creepier. Uh, so another thing that I thought was really interesting in the, in the book, which is cool is that, so Kelvin, after all this stuff keeps happening, starts to think he's gone mad. And this is before Harry ever shows up, but this is just seeing the, the woman walking down the hall and all this stuff. He's like, I'm losing my mind clearly. And he tries to come up with a way, or he thinks he's hallucinating Mm -hmm. and like, maybe this is all a dream. And he tries to come up with a way to test himself. And what he does is that he asks a satellite orbiting the planet to do like a series of measurements like calculate a series of like five measurements and then he prints that off doesn't look at it and puts it like in a box or something and then he goes to like a, an atlas or something and does the same calculates out himself slowly the same measurements and then compares them and his his thought process being if my mind is creating this my mind wouldn't be able to create the numbers that the computer did instantaneously mm-hmm and so if I print those out and then compare them to what I come up with and they're the same, I'm not hallucinating. This is, in fact, a, like it's like a way to test whether or not he's like in reality or interesting. It, it, it has its own problems, but in yeah. terms of reliability as a test, but I think it's clever and interesting. But the thing that's super cool is that they match and he's like, OK, I'm not I'm not losing my mind. Um, but then he goes to shove the 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 calculations he did into a drawer and when he opens it, he finds a pad of paper that has like the exact same calculations. And oh, he no. realizes somebody else, one of the other like Sartorius yeah. or Snout or something had already done this exact same thing to test their own sanity. And it's one of those little details where it's just like, he's like, oh shit. <laughs> like I'm clearly going down the exact same path that these other guys who seem to have lost their mind are going. It was in the description of Gabarian's companion, but the uh, the feet being smooth on these people and like like a newborn is one of the things that he notices first about Hari. And he's like, this is not her. Um, and I mentioned him, her knocking him across the room. Uh, so I, I mentioned this earlier during the when you asked about whether or not he launches her into space in a shuttle. He does. And he gets his face burned in that moment. Right. And this is something that he has noticed on both Sartorius and Snout as he arrived and met, met each of them, that they seem to have a sunburn. And that is in the book. Uh, and I didn't get that in the movie. They do follow up with it with Snout a little bit because he he sees them having a sunburn. And then after this thing happens with him and he should, puts her in the shuttle and launches her and he gets his face burned, uh-huh. he then has the realization, oh, that's they did the same thing. And that's what they don't have a sunburn. They also launched their companions out into space and got burned the same way I did. Huh. 
Um, and in the movie that do pay that off where snout is like giving him the burn cream and rubs some on his face. Yeah. And he's kind of joking and implying that he's done the same thing already. But in the, he, he does look kind of, he looks like he's been in a tanning bed. Yeah. And movie, he, but, and he but. in particular has one side has some like little blistery looking yeah. things that are very subtle. Uh, but in the movie, it's a very, or in the book, it's a very distinct description of them having like a line where like they're, I guess their hat or something mm-hmm. they were wearing was, and they have like this like burnt section of their face. That's very obvious. And, uh, and then, so he, again, it's another thing that he realizes in that moment that he's done the exact same thing. Um, similar to the calculations thing that he's heading down the exact same path that these guys are. And it's very dis- uh, disconcerting and like unsettling and creepy. And the movie does it a little bit, but I just don't think as effectively. Mm-hmm. So I talked about them having a video call, the snout and Satorius and, uh, and Kelvin, they all have a call and where they're like video calling, talking about the the guests, which in the book they end up calling psi creatures for a time, which is, mm. I thought was interesting. But I like that being in the in this scene actually kind of happens in the movie, but they all just go to the lab and kind of talk together. And this yeah. is like the part where they're like talking about her blood and stuff. They do this over a phone call, a video call in the in the book. And like I said, they cover their cameras. And I think it helps build the fact that none of these people like trust in each other. Mm-hmm. And they're all kind of like they don't want to be around each other because they're not really sure what's going. It's it's creepy and weird. Um, and I guess I just wanted them to interact in person in the in the film. And it's fine. Yeah, I can't imagine that the video call with the two blank screens would be like fair. super compelling fair. to watch That's for fair. very long. That's fair. <laughs> Um, there's a bunch of, again, there's so much like history and stuff in the book that's not in the movie. And one of them I thought was interesting is there's this event called the eruption of the 106, which is a time where the, uh, Solaris erupted a, I believe a semi triad, um, like super unexpectedly and mm-hmm. ended up killing like 600 or 106 people. And oh. it's just a little story, like a handful, a bunch of people, a fair number of people have died over the years, but it's always super unexpected. And in fact, it's actually relatively safe, they describe in part of the things. Like, if you, like, fly through elements of the... Or if you go down to elements of the the ocean or fly through the ocean and stuff, it actually, like, moves out of the way. Like, it doesn't hmm. want seem to want to interact with them. But there are times where accidents happen or and people do die, and this was one of them. And it's just a little short story, but it was kind of interesting. Um, and, they, they, and they also... There's this thing called... Uh, after that, called Sankin's Ultimatum, where they want to... They want to nuke some some people want to nuke the ocean after this happens. And then this guy says, if you do that, I'll destroy the entire space state. Like there's this Sankin guy is on uh-huh. the space station. He says if or on the station, he says, if you nuke, if you guys nuke the ocean, I'll kill everybody else on the station. And there's like this big stand. It, there's a bunch of this weird, cool, interesting little backstory stuff that we get over the course of the book that just doesn't make it into the movie. I think the book does a better job of depicting Kelvin's struggle about wanting to keep Hari versus like be rid of her. Mm -hmm. It comes across okay in the movie. There's like that scene that's really weird in the movie where he leaves to go to the lab and then like runs back and is like hugging Hari. And I think, and she's like coming to, and I think the idea is she like passed out when he left because again, him not being in his presence or something. Yeah. And I think ultimately by the end, we do kind of get there, but it's just more, there's so much more of it in the book because we can read his inner struggle mm-hmm. of like his thoughts and what he wants, what he wants to do about Hari. And it's it's just more heartbreaking, I think, in the book than it ends up being in the movie. I also think that revealing her killing herself, the fact that she killed herself 
happens as soon as we meet her in the book. And I think I prefer that to the reveal in the movie where it just comes kind of almost as a twist, like after she's been there for like an hour of the film. Yeah. She kind of like just says it. And I like finding out earlier in the book because then we get to be there along his ride as he like grapples with his failings during their previous relationship and what Mm -hmm. he's going to do now that she's back and like his own guilt at this whole, how the whole situation ended before. And and the movie gets there in the end because she reveals this and we do find out that he feels guilty and that's why he's kind of been avoiding the subject and all that sort of stuff. But when we find out earlier in the book, I like the tension it causes for us as readers. I don't know. I, 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 I think I prefer the reveal in the book, but the movie one's not bad. There's, there's a, I talked about how there's a bunch of really good conversations. One in particular is this big, long conversation Kelvin and Snout have about Hari and what Kelvin wants to do about her. And like, none of this is in the movie. Um, and it ties back to a moment ago of, of about Kelvin's conflict, not coming through the same way. And I just wanted to read a short excerpt of this because I think it's a really good example of the, some of the dialogue that we get. Uh, this is them just talking about Hari. Uh, this is, we're starting with snout here right so she loves you and you want to love her it isn't the same thing you're wrong i'm sorry kelvin but it was your idea to spill all this you don't love her you do love her she's willing to give her life so are you it's touching it's magnificent anything you like but it's out of place here it's the wrong setting don't you see no you don't want to you are going around in circles to satisfy the curiosity of a power we don't understand and can't control. And she is an aspect, a periodic manifestation of that power. If she was, if you were being pestered by some infatuated hag, you wouldn't think twice about packing her off, right? I suppose so. Well, then that probably explains why she is not a hag. You feel as if your hands are tied. That's just it. They are. All you are doing is adding one more theory to the millions of theories in the library. Leave me alone, Snow. She is... No, I won't say any more. It's up to you, but remember that she is a mirror that reflects a part of your mind. If she is beautiful, it's because your memories are. You provide the formula. You can only finish where you started. Don't forget that. What do you expect me to do? Send her away? I've already asked you why, and you don't answer. I'll give you an answer. It was you who wanted this conversation, not me. I haven't meddled with your affairs, and I'm not telling you what to do or what not to do. Even if I had the right, I would not. You come here of your own free will and you dump it all on me. You know why? To take the weight of your own, to take the weight off your own back. Well, I've experienced that weight. Don't try to shut me up and I leave you free to find your own solution. But you want opposition. If I got in your way, you would fight me. Something tangible, a man just like you with the same flesh and blood. Fight me and you could feel that you too were a man. When I don't give you the excuse to fight, you quarrel with me or rather with yourself. The one thing you've left out is telling me you'd die of grief if she suddenly disappeared. No, please, I've heard enough. I countered clumsily. I came to tell you because I thought you ought to know that I intend leaving the station with her. Still on the same tack, Snow shrugged. So yeah, they have this... That's only like half of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Or not even, they're quite a bit more. It goes on for pages, but I really... Some of that stuff in there, um, confronting like what she is and what he wants and mm-hmm. Snow calling out his bullshit. And I don't know. That was really good. And we don't get like any of that in yeah. the book or in the movie. Uh, after that, he also worries that shooting his encephalogram into the ocean will 
end up in result in Ahari dying because he subconsciously wants her to. Mm-hmm. He's not sure. Like he confesses that he says that he wants her to be there, but he's worried that if they read his brainwaves and then shoot that into the ocean, the ocean will be like, Oh, he doesn't actually want her there and kill her. Yeah. So he's, there's this tension going on with that too. So after that whole conversation with snout that lays bare his insecurities and his inner lies, uh, that chapter ends on Kelvin going to bed thinking to himself as it's the last line in the chapter chapter. Apathy robbed me of the strength even to despise myself, which I thought was a, What's a mood. <laughs> it's a whole, yeah, it's a whole line. And I was like, oh, that's a good one. Uh, there's a shot in the movie that we both were like, why? What is happening? And it's I put it in better in the book because I just don't get it. And maybe somebody out there can explain it. But the camera zooms in on kelvin's ear and his ear hair as he's talking about hari i believe i think i can't remember the exact context of the conversation because i was so distracted by the the ear the ear zoom yeah and i don't know i didn't get it i didn't get it i would have to i will say that i think this movie would benefit from a rewatch i probably won't at least for a while because it is very long Mm -hmm. but i do think there would benefit from a rewatch uh, we're almost we're almost to the end of better in the book, I promise. Kelvin has this whole long thing in the book at the very end about his he has this hypothesis about an imperfect God that's very interesting. I'm not going to read it because it's a lot, um, but it's another whole discussion uh, kind of contemplating the idea of what a God could even be. And he he's like, it, it, again, it, it's very interesting. I would recommend going and seeking out a uh, I mean, I'd recommend this book and we'll get to that. But um, that conversation, none of that's in the in the movie about the imperfect God. Um, all right, that's time. Let's talk about the ending. <laughs> so in, and I have this in better in the book because overall I prefer the book's ending. Um, in the book, Kelvin goes uh, from the station down. To, this is after Hari dies. He goes down to Solaris to set foot on the ocean for the first time to kind of say goodbye. He's decided to leave uh, or he's deciding, but he thinks he's going to leave. And he realizes he has never, he goes, he says to snout, like what kind of sol- solarist would I be if I never set foot on Solaris? Because he hasn't at this point and everybody else, you know, mm-hmm. at some point goes down and walks on a memoid or whatever. I'll imagine how embarrassed you would be if you right. came back to that's, earth. That's what he says. Like, that's literally what he says to snout. Didn't he's actually like, go on the planet. Yeah. That's exactly what he says to snout. So as he's like in the last week before he's getting ready to leave or whatever, he's like, uh, he takes a helicopter or something and goes down um, and he's walking around on the planet and he ends up climbing up this giant memoid that he finds uh, and ultimately ends up on a beach. Uh, and he literally shakes hands with the ocean. It's a very cool scene that I knew was not going to be in the movie because I knew it would be impossible. Um, <laughs> here's what he says. Uh, this is him describing it. What followed was a faithful reproduction of a phenomenon which had been analyzed a century before. The wave hesitated, recoiled, then enveloped my hand without touching it, so that a thin covering of air separated my glove inside a cavity which had been fluid a moment previously and now had a fleshy consistency. I raised my hand slowly, and the wave, or rather an outcrop of the wave, rose at the same time, enfolding my hand in a translucent cyst with greenish reflections. I stood up so as to raise my hand still higher, and the gelatinous substance stretched like a rope but did not break. The main body of the wave remained motionless on the shore, surrounding my feet without touching them, like some strange beast patiently waiting for the experiment to finish. A flower had grown out of the ocean, and its calyx was molded to my fingers. I stepped back, the stem trembled, stirred uncertainly, and fell back into the wave, which gathered it and receded. So it's this, like, very... Moana vibes. Yeah, it feels like this very cool moment, you know, of and... So he does all that, 
he shakes hands with the ocean and then he has some sort of vaguely spiritual thoughts about everything that's happened to him over the course of this. Uh, and then, and then the book wraps up, uh, with, uh, basically him kind of forgiving the ocean for what happened mm-hmm. and making peace. And then the, it's vague about what's, what's going to come from this, but he's just on Solaris, like having this moment basically. And that's how the book ends in the movie. He, Goes from snout kind of having their discussion to just it's it appears that he's just back on Earth now. He's made it back home. And I was like, oh, are they going to do the ocean thing with this like pond here? Because he's like the pond from the beginning by his father's house, I guess it is. Um, As a moment in the beginning, which I thought was interesting, where he's on Earth and he walks over to the 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 pond and he like dips his hands in it and like washes his hands Mm -hmm. and i was like okay i could see if they couldn't do this cool like thing from the book finding a way to do it sort of symbolically with this pond on earth i don't know maybe they're gonna do something with that that's not ends up not ending up what (laughs) happens because the pond is frozen um he walks up to the house and water is like poor he sees his dad inside and water is like pouring yeah. On his father. Who doesn't seem to notice. Who doesn't seem to notice. And we had, this is a sort of a, 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 a callback to the beginning where, where Kelvin was sitting in the rain outside yeah. at the house. So there's some callback there. And then he ultimately falls on his knees in front of his dad. And this is where I was like, I don't get. And then that's how the movie ends. The camera pulls back and reveals he is on Solaris. Yeah. On one of the islands that they mentioned. And I was like, somebody's going to have to explain this to me. It's. Uh, There's some interesting visuals going on, but I felt like I did not get it. So let's, I have some theories. I thought about, that was my initial interpretation. My initial reaction was just like, I don't, because the book, I felt like I understood. Like it's still, it's still like heady and a little over my head philosophically. And like, it's, I think it would take a second reading and maybe even a better translation. Cause I think some of that can maybe get lost in translation a little bit. But ultimately, I felt like I got what, where the movie ended. Um, and again, I'm not going to read you the last page, but it just kind of him coming to terms with everything that's happened. and or where the book ended. Oh, sorry, where the book yeah. ended. Him kind of coming, coming to terms with everything that happened in this sort of beautiful moment with the ocean and all that sort of stuff. It all kind of worked without completely understanding it. I was like, okay. But this part, I was like, what is going on? So I was like, I got to figure out what this means. It right? felt very out of my depth at yeah, the end of this I also movie. felt very out of my depth. And I was like, all right, I, I don't get what all this symbolism is supposed to be. So I started trying to work back. And I was like, well, why did they add his father and his mother? Those aren't in the book at all. Right. Really. Um, and his aunt character from the beginning is not in the, none of those characters are in the book and, and setting that all up ahead of time. There must've been a reason for that. And why is the significance of him falling to his knees in front of his father as the final shot? Like why that? I want to spec, I want to head all this (laughs) off by saying this is pure. I have not read, read or watched any sort of other like theory or analysis about this film. This is purely just my own thoughts 24 hours after watching it a potential interpretation and we're going to talk through it and see if it makes any sense to you. Um, I don't know if it does. I just, I was trying to come up with something and I didn't want to like get it from somebody else. I ultimately will go watch or read something, but so I think him falling to his knees in front of his father could tie back to some previous unseen conflict that he had with his father over his mother, who also appears to be dead at the beginning of the movie. Right. Because we see a framed picture of her in the same way we see a framed picture of Hari. Yeah. A very similar, like, posed picture and stuff like that. And there does seem to be some kind of tension between his father and him. Not, like, super on the surface, but there seems to be something going on there. 
and I think we're trying to go for like a as the father there goes the son thing where Kelvin held a grudge against his father for something that happened with his mom. But now the same thing has happened twice to Kelvin mm -hmm. with Hari killing herself originally back in the day, which we never even got into exactly what happened there. He it is mentioned in the movie, but he left her essentially um, and she threatened to kill himself herself, Ed, but he didn't believe her mm -hmm. or something. And so he like just left her and then he comes back. Uh, and she has used some drugs he left there or something to kill herself. And he feels incredibly guilty about this for the rest of his life right. because he, like, didn't believe her or whatever. And now she has killed herself. She's come back and they had a second chance and she's killed herself again. And I'm wondering if the ending is supposed to be now him seeing his father in some new sympathetic light. Because I think this also ties into the dream containing both Hari and Kelvin's mother. Mm. Um, and them being very similar. Yeah. And I... <sighs> So him prostrating himself in front of his father is him coming to terms with his own failings, recognizing them in himself and that they're the same failings that he couldn't forgive his father for. And so I think maybe that's some thing I, I that think, the movie's I going that, for. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. Um, I it, think my only potential issue with that theory is, and it's not even really an issue, it's just like not knowing for sure that there even is that conflict I agree. there is maybe the only issue with that interpretation, but I think that makes sense. Yeah. I, I don't disagree. Um, yeah, I, I think it is, I, I it's, it's incredibly opaque, uh, yeah. the symbolism. It's not easy. And I, like I said, that was just me trying to sit on it for like a day, trying to think like, what the heck does this mean? And I do think that because of the sort of inversion of the stuff we get at the beginning and the end, um, with the rain on him at the beginning and then the rain on the father at the end. And again, him sort of seemingly again, prostrating himself in a, an almost apologetic manner in front of his father. I don't, yeah, I agree. I think the biggest issue is that I didn't feel like there was a particular tension. Mm -hmm. There may have been something there. He does have a line. The father has a line about how they never talk or something at the beginning. Yeah. He does have that yeah. line, but it's hard to know what the exact context of that line is. Again, we've only seen this movie once. So anyway, and again, it's all very like, super like uh, not oh, obvious <laughs> i am usually pretty good at yeah. symbolism like if i might just toot my own horn yeah i'm usually pretty good at symbolism and this left me in the dust yeah i will say uh one of our friends rodney who's a big film uh film guy said that he tarkovsky films he has a hard time with yeah. he finds them very difficult to suss um and sort of figure out what what they're getting at. Uh, I mean, Sarkovsky is regarded as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Like he's among like the all, like one of the most influential and important filmmakers of <laughs> the 20th century. Um, but his stuff is particularly like heady and strange and philosophical yeah. and symbolic in a way that is not easy to parse. So if you did watch this movie and you were like, what I don't, I felt the same way. And we, we both <laughs> felt the same way. And like you said, we are both generally pretty good because we've had at least a little bit of training. We're generally pretty good yeah. at being able to figure out um, what something means or is supposed to mean. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, both of us have had some amount of training. And we've been doing it on this podcast. Lingu for, language yeah. and but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I would love I would love if you've made it this far, I would love to hear what anybody else has to say and what they think. Again, I'm going to go do some like reading and watching. I'm sure there are essays and stuff or book, mm -hmm. you know, whatever about 
sort of interpretations of this ending. I would be interested to see what people think of my interpretation, possible interpretation, um, and what other people think, because uh, it is interesting. It is interesting. Speaking of uh, the movie being interesting, that's the end of Better in the Book. Let's go ahead and talk about what I thought the movie did better. My life has taught me one lesson, Hugo, and not the one I thought it would. Happy endings only happen in the movies. I thought it goes on way too long, but I thought the scene where Burton is driving in the car and it, like through the traffic and the sound builds and builds and builds and the lights flying by, I thought was like this sort of interesting visual uh, symbolism mm -hmm. and then in comparison to space travel and the journey he has been on and the one Kelvin is about to go on. I thought it was interesting. Like I thought it worked. It's, yeah, it, it's compelling for a while. It goes on too <laughs> go long. On, it go goes on, on way, way too long. long. I agree. I agree. Um, but it is... Uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, I, I, the encounter with Jabarian's guest outside of his room after he leaves the room and sees the woman walking down the hall. I only have this in better in the movie because they changed it to less problematic. Yeah. <laughs> version of this character. Um, because I do actually think the, the way it's written in the book, uh, is much more evocative and creepy and weird yeah. than, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. than it comes across in the movie. And this is even before the whole, dead body part this is just the way it's written when she he sees her for the first time and she walks down the hall and stuff um i when i read that in the book i was super excited for this moment barring any potential like like weird problematic elements i was super excited to see how they did it in the movie and it works mm -hmm. in the movie it is creepy but i think there's so much more there to have with that there's so much more there to have with this whole book and we'll talk about that eventually <laughs> um but anyways, I, I I liked that they didn't have any weird racial issues with the. Yeah, I I mean, I don't want to like. I mean, other than I don't recasting her. I don't want to project what their reason for changing that was, but it is kind of like wild to me the idea that even in like the early seventies they were like, yeah, I don't think we should. Yeah, I who knows if it was that yeah. or if it was we're in Poland and we just we're just going to get a, another Polish white girl that we got. Yeah. Here. Like I have no idea, you know, we yeah. have no idea what made them make that change. Um, but it is, I'm glad they made it at least to some extent. Uh, so uh, the shot, uh, there's this incredible shot in the movie after she tears through the door to try to get to Kelvin and he's like going to patch her up. He realizes that he doesn't need to cause she like heals instantly. And it, that seems identical in the book essentially, but the shot in the movie where it goes from her bleeding hand, uh, like apparently still laying lifeless on the bed over to him looking astounded and then back over to her all in one shot. And she's now sitting up looking straight forward was incredibly well done and creepy uh, and cool and like off putting. And I, I thought it was really good. Uh, I also so jumping way towards the end, the movie does a much more in-depth exploration of like identity and humanity about Hari mm. that is in the book. It's present, but it's not nearly as explored, which yeah. much more explored is Kelvin's sort of journey and like experience with all of this as opposed to Hari. Mm -hmm. And I like that speech they give her at the end in the, um, in the library yeah. where they're all having dinner. Yeah. And she says, she kind of like lays bare some of their faults. She's like, I am becoming human. I can feel just as deeply as you. I'm starting to be able to get by without him. And like, she kind of like 
argues in favor of her own humanity, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was an interesting and compelling thing, which just doesn't happen in the book. Um, there are some moments where she has conversations, I think, with Kelvin uh, kind of about like herself and stuff, but not in the same self-possessed way that it come across that it, that it happens in the movie, which I thought was an interesting, uh, a cool change. I liked it. So you mentioned it. I mentioned it earlier that in the book, she drugs Kelvin so that she can go kill herself with snout in the movie. He gets like sick. Yeah. And after, and then he finally wakes up from being sick. She is, she has killed herself. And it almost seems as if Hari killing herself breaks his sickness and mm-hmm. frees him from his sickness. And I think that is an interesting possible change to add to the motivation for Hari's ultimate act. I don't hate it that it seems to be her presence is ultimately like physically destroying him in some mm-hmm. way and that leading lending to her decision to ultimately kill herself. I don't. I can go either way on it because in the book, it just feels more like a decision she makes based on like what she knows about the situation. Whereas this potentially is like, there are some physical stakes or like more, more immediate physical stakes as opposed to like, he's just going to have to stay here forever. If I, if I'm, if I'm around still either way, she does it out of love for him, but it's, it's just slightly different. I, I don't know which I prefer, but I thought it was an interesting idea. Um, because that, again, that whole sickness thing, at least that physical sickness thing is not present in the book. Uh, and the final one that has have note I have is during that physical sickness, there's this shot that I thought was really cool where they're, they're helping him down the hallway mm-hmm. and he's like stumbling and they're carrying him and there's a bright light at the end of the hallway. And every time they get to a certain point where the light fills the whole screen white, the shot resets and you don't even notice yeah. for like two or three times. And then I realized that they were they were um, resetting the same shot over and over again hmm. instead of uh, instead of like it because at first it looks like you're you're going down a continuingly long hallway and we're just keep watching them but I think what's actually happening in that moment is every time that light fills the screen we're resetting to the beginning of the shot and I think it just creates this more disorienting like um, mindset in the viewer that I thought was really cool but uh, I could be wrong about about it resetting but i'm like 95 percent sure that's what happens i thought it was neat and a clever little thing um lots of the filmmaking in this movie was clever that's not an exhaustive list i did yeah. think this movie did a lot really well but uh actually one thing that i liked about the filmmaking in the movie um i don't know if this is the right term for it this is what i i would have we would have called it in doing like a theatrical production um some of the blocking yeah um because there were some points where they would have like a character like on one side of the screen and then we would like pan over and that character would suddenly be on the other side of the screen. And I I thought it was a very like good way to create something that was disorienting. Disorienting. Yeah. And they do that. A lot of stuff like that in the movie. I I thought the shot um, I was going to mention too, the, the dream sequence um, where he sees like a bunch of Haris and stuff mm-hmm. is uh, like some clever filmmaking with a similar thing where the camera pans and they move her from one side to the other, yeah. but they also have people in wigs facing away, like women in wigs facing away from like body doubles basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all done like practically, but it was a cl- very clever way to kind of create this weird surreal thing yeah. all, all practically without any sort of like, um, you know, out of camera effects. 
All right, got a, a list of a few things the movie nailed. As I expected, practically perfect in every way. Uh, I loved the shot of, uh, so when he's landing on Solaris, they're like not responding. And we talked about him landing and all that stuff. But I, and this, I guess, could be a movie better in the movie. I don't know. The shot of his eyes as he's flying was just a cool shot. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, the actual physical outside of the station looks a lot like what I imagined um, when we see it as he's flying towards it. And it's like hovering a couple thousand feet over the ocean um but it's in atmo it's not like a space station i thought that was spot on to what i kind of envisioned from the book uh there's a ventilation system that sucks the rocket fumes out of the landing bay he's in and they mm. have a dis distinct shot of that which is mentioned in the book snow is pretty adequately losing his mind or seeming to be when he first runs into him again it's a little bit more so in the book but it's it's close enough and it works in the film uh and he does have the line as he's leaving, which is, I thought was a great little like setting Kelvin on edge line where he says, if you see something out of the ordinary, don't lose your head. And then he's yeah. like, bye. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what, it what does that mean? Very like a uh, mad professor kind yeah. of yeah. trope. It's, just, it's like, what does that mean? I don't, okay. <laughs> bye, I guess. Uh, when he does meet Sartorius for the first time, he goes up to his lab and Sartorius doesn't want to talk to him. He has it all barricaded and everything, mm -hmm. but then he does come out and he's holding the door shut behind him and the door's like occasionally banging. And I, it's a great moment in the books. So you're like, what is going on in here? Yeah. And they have that same moment in the movie. Again, ultimately the little person or whatever does get out in the film, which doesn't happen in the book, but the, the meat of the scene is there. Uh, there, there's times throughout the movie where we go from sort of a more red light. There's two suns on Solaris. There's a mm -hmm. red, it's a bi, uh, binary solar system or whatever. There's a red sun and a blue sun. And in the film they do, I don't know if they ever even really mention it. They might once. They don't, I don't, I don't think. If they did, I didn't notice because I thought that was supposed to denote nighttime. Like the color change there. Well, I, I, I will, as I will admit that I'm not really sure they do talk about nighttime in the book. And I had a hard time figuring out there's two suns. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if when one of them up, that is technically nighttime or not, mm -hmm. or if there's a separate nighttime and there's also two different daytimes, because he does mention that there should be like a 12 hour day of red sun and then a 12 hour day of blue sun. And I think so. I think there is a nighttime, but it's different than the two suns. And anyways, the point being, I think that when the light is blue in yeah. those scenes is supposed to be the blue sun okay. that they okay. have in the book, which again, they might mention once, um, but it's a, mentioned several times in the book. And it's a cool little detail to change that lighting for people who know what is going on there. Uh, ultimately, they kind of nailed Kelvin's paranoia about Snout and Sartorius and his whole confusion about what is going on. I thought that was when the movie was at its best is when he first gets there and mm -hmm. is trying to figure out what's going on. That's also when I think the the book is like most intriguing and like engaging. Uh, it's engaging all the way through. But that part stuff in particular was like this may, is prime movie material. And I thought they did pretty good with it. There's a couple details I would change. But in general, I, I liked it. Also, Rhea, uh, sorry, Hari's first reveal, um, the way the red light is hitting her through the window and that close up of her mouth is the first thing we see. And she's almost kind of smiling. Not really. It's so creepy. It's just perfect. She's revealed very similarly sitting by the window in the book. Um, and it's kind of exactly how I imagined her first appearing to him as he wakes up. 
Uh, and then finally, her struggling with her identity and feeling like there's something wrong inside of her is something that is a big part of the second half of the book mm-hmm. and sort of coming to terms with what she is. I also thought it was a good sort of analogous exploration of like depression because that mm. is something she dealt with yeah. in her real life, right. like the original Hari back in the day. And I thought there the movie does a pretty good job of kind of capturing some of those elements of her um, sort of this it's not as good as it is in the book in terms of like because the other thing and i forgot to mention this that happens in the book is that it's it almost gives him like a second chance to redo his which we get in the movie right but but it it feels more obvious in the book that it's this because she is sort of depressive and suicidal in the book in the same way that she was in real life he has this second chance to Uh like do it right uh-huh. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't know if that comes across quite as well in the movie. I think it's an interesting storyline in the book, and ultimately he fails, I guess. I'd like to make clear here that what I'm trying to say in this moment isn't that if you're in a relationship with a depressive person or a suicidal person and they end up going through with that act, that that is a failure on the part of their partner or on you or whoever. Um, I, I realized listening back that it could kind of sound that way, and that was not at all my intention. Um, I think the movie is or, and the book is trying to do something interesting with the idea, like the philosophical idea of getting a second chance at that situation and sort of how that would affect the p- people involved. Um, but yeah, it's not my remotely my intention to imply that it is a failure of somebody if their depressive or suicidal partner <clears throat> if that situation ends, unfortunately. So just wanted to clarify. Anyways, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of stuff. I, we're that's anyways, I, I thought the, her struggle with her identity as a, an allegory for depression was good in both. So there we go. Uh, that's it. Uh, we got a few odds and ends and then we'll get to the final verdict. So the uh, opening credits, I was like, those are some opening credits. It's literally just white text on black background. Mm. Nothing else. Very utilitarian. Yeah, because I would very much have imagined what it would have been would have been like just shots of the ocean Mm, with the credits. You know what I mean? Because even even back then they could have done just like, because I will say what I generally imagined for the ocean, at least a a very close visual reference would be like a lava lamp. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, okay. and and I'm not saying they okay. should use a lava lamp, but I'm saying you could do something with a <laughs> like lava lamp like substance, yeah, that kind of technology or whatever. And they have some stuff that looks like that at times in the movie, yeah. and so I would have felt like that would have been a good way to do the opening credits. <laughs> when you said that um, you were imagining they would do the credits over the ocean, I imagined the credits from Ben and Arthur. I honestly, <laughs> the Ben and Arthur credits jumped to my mind. That's honestly not far off yeah. from. <laughs> the sludge yeah yeah speaking of the ocean though i could have sworn in the prequel you said that the ocean was red <sighs> and it's never red in the movie i so it's it's a confusing thing in the book because it seems to be described as lots of different colors at different times it, i think I, that makes sense it is red I think it's sometimes, and I've seen some depictions of it in like art where it is red, mm-hmm. but I've also seen depictions where it's different colors. I don't know, uh, but it is, uh, there is a lot of red when there's the red sun out, and I, 
I think it's just lots of different colors throughout the book. It's fair. And then, but there is a lot of the times that it's red. I think it changes. Yeah, them. I just wanted to because I was expecting it to be red, right? When we watched the movie, and then it was like kind of bluish a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I I, <laughs> I had a hard time even in the book because they they describe so many different ways that it looks mm-hmm. at different times that. I don't know what it's like base state is supposed to be or if we're supposed to even know what it's base state is. I could be part of it. The fact that it's confusing might be intentional because we I, don't I understand mean, yeah, the ocean. <laughs> feels like that might be the point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I did. So speaking of the prequel, there was one thing I mentioned in the prequel that there was in the, somebody had <laughs> uh, read the ocean as a symbolic representation of the USSR or something. And that, and Lem had kind of poked fun at that. I will say that the, based on this one description in the book, I could see how somebody, if they just took that might think that they, they, they had delved some depths of uh, symbolism here because uh, this is one of the descriptions early on in the book. New theories proliferated. The ocean was evidence of a state of degeneration, of regression. Following a phase of intellectual depletion, it was a deviant neoplasm, the product of the bodies of former inhabitants of the planet whom it had devoured, swallowed up, dissolving and blending the residue into this unchanging, self-propagating form, supercellular in structure. To me, okay. I think you could yeah. look at that and go, oh, yeah, yeah it's like with the USR, USR gobbled up all the little countries and turned it into yeah. one bit. You know, like I could see somebody reading that and being like, yeah, maybe they're talking about I don't know if it yeah. carries through the rest, but that I one. I mean, that that chunk of uh, monologue from Snout that you read was, I mean, not necessarily like unique to the USSR, but yeah. it definitely to me read as like anti-colonialism. And... It's definitely anti-colonialism, and I, but I think it. I think it's so it's so ubiquitous that yeah. it, it would be incorrect to read it as a reference necessary. Not incorrect, but it would be limited to read it as a limiting to read it as like a specific critique or reference to the USSR. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it isn't because um, it would apply still. But to me, it's so like right. But you, you, you could human, apply it. Yeah. You know, across the board, across the board. Uh, yeah, because it is very much a sort of a, a call out of colonialism and, and just humanity in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, my last note here, I just wanted to um, throw out my admiration for Kelvin as such a stylish man. <laughs> he is. He really is. His bathrobe and his pajamas are all monogrammed. All monogrammed. We love it. Yeah. I love his platform boots that he wears. Those pants. Great. I want those pants. But he, he, I love his, his gray like, pants with like these black strappy yeah. things down the sides. I don't even know. It's, it's Again, it's supposed to be like space clothes yeah. it's like the i idea. love i love his outfit for most of it though because he's wearing he's got like platform boots and like the fancy tight pants and a mesh shirt and yeah. a leather jacket yeah. he looks like he's going clubbing i yeah, love it it's fantastic space clubbing all right it's finally time for the final verdict now uh, are you ready for your sentence Sentence? But there must be a verdict first. Sentence first. Verdict afterwards. Solaris the film is a keystone piece of science fiction filmmaking. It's beautifully shot, revels in the slow moments, and presents lots of fascinating symbolism that makes the viewer really think about what the filmmaker is trying to say. It also captures some of the major thematic elements from the book, dealing with past demons, identity, communication and the way relationships can repeat themselves uh, and touches on some other ones. It doesn't, however, capture one of the main themes of the book, the dissection and exploration of the idea of contact. 
Again, it does touch on this a little bit, but I didn't get the same feeling of awe and wonder and revelry at this truly alien organism and man's futile attempts to communicate with it uh, in the same way that I did in the book. And I think that Snout's big speech that I read from the book is one of the moments that, while some of it is in, elements of it are in the movie, it needs more of it. Lim takes this theme he turns it inward making it a reflection of man's failings which i think the movie does capture to some extent but i still felt it was lacking the technological limitations of the time period also don't help as many of the most visually stunning moments i was envisioning while reading the book just simply aren't possible in a 1970 film these giant mountains uh, this caverns of this ocean material representing complex mathematical and fundamental formulas of the universe manifesting in these like literally grand canyon sized features it just such a fascinating idea uh kelvin shaking hands with the ocean was such a visceral passage and i was dying to see it on film but there's just really no way at the time for them to capture that and to be fair to the film i think they realized it and they just didn't really try and instead focused on some of the more symbolic imagery with a newly imagined father mother backstory for kelvin Ultimately, I think the movie has a lot going for it, despite suffering from a bit of over length. That being said, I kind of adored this book. I found it to be both thought provoking and wildly visually evocative. It satisfied, satisfied the philosopher and the sci-fi imagery fan within me and left me hoping that the movie would do the same. The movie didn't quite stick the landing for me. So because of that, I have to give it to the book. Well, there you have it. Uh, I, I will say that I, I'm not, it is not uh, necessarily a, uh, to the degradation of the film it's I, there's stuff about the film that i don't love um and we've talked about it but i think it is a very fascinating film and a very important film in the course of science fiction cinema mm. it's just we've it's something you should see but i i think the, the book is something you should read and it's also probably take you about as long to read the book as it would to watch the movie <laughs> it's only 200 pages. Uh, the last thing I wanted to mention is that I really do think this could do for another remake. Mm -hmm. So they have the 2002 version, uh, the Steven Soderbergh version with George Clooney. I've only watched the trailer from what I've seen and heard. It, it also ignores most of the important stuff from the book and kind of just focuses on their relationship. Um, what did what did them call it? Like erotic problems of people in space. Yeah, erotic or problems of people in space. Um, and. I think that's an important part of the story, but I do think that again, having not seen the movie, it, it may be lacking some of the other stuff that I want. And what I would love is for Denny Villeneuve to do a version of this, uh, mm. of this book. I'm sure there are other directors that could also make it. And he's a bit of an obvious choice because, but it's just he, so he did, spot on. He did, he did sunshine, a, right? No, 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 no. He did a rival. Oh, who am I thinking? Um, the guy who did son, Danny Boyd, <laughs> Uh, I believe his name's Danny Boyd. Um, Boyd, Danny, I think it's Danny Boyd. Oh boy, now I'm blanking on it. Uh, the guy who did Sunshine is might be Danny Boyd, but that's another good option. Danny Boyle, Danny Boyle. Okay. Danny Boyle did Sunshine. Uh, he's all, he also did Train Spotting among Twenty Eight Days Later, a bunch of other stuff. Because a lot of what you've described about the the first half of the book being like a mystery thriller kind of made me think of Sunshine. Yeah, I could see that um, for sure. Uh, I was thinking that the the visual, the alien world and sort of the visual like language of something like um, 
arrival mm, mm-hmm. and the, this depiction of super alien things and the idea of communication are all like stuff in his wheelhouse oh, yeah, for sure for uh, sure. but i also think he could do he also i mean because in arrival such a core of that film was the the story of her past and her daughter and and you know what i mean like yeah it covers a lot of similar thematic ground i feel like yeah but he also has the and and his team or whoever he works with have sort of the visual the visual chops. Uh, chops to to kind of crush a film like this. I think they could. He, I think he can do all of the philosophical stuff that I want from the book, um, while also delivering those like awe inspiring alien ocean moments that I was left wanting mm-hmm. after watching this movie. Because I do think that y- y- even though you could say that maybe it's it's not the point, I do think there's something about the sort of vis- uh, Im- visual depictions in the book or visual descriptions in the book of this alien world. And because the idea that it is so alien is, and, and the whole idea of contact and all that is such an important part of the book, being able to see that on the screen oh, yeah. would help yeah. sell the, some of the thematic through lines of the book that we didn't get in this one. For no, for sure. I, I mean, just based on what you've told me, I think if you did get the right people yeah. to work on this, I think the technology is there oh, now. Absolutely there to now. make it something just really cool. Absolutely. It is absolutely there now. You you and you could argue that maybe that it would it would fail in in sacrificing some of the more thematic elements and philosophical elements for that visual spectacle. But uh-huh. I do think if you read this book, there's no way that you can't imagine that it has to be both because the, the philosophical parts are super important, but so is he spins Dozens and dozens of this 200 page book describing this alien world in great detail for like pages and pages on end. And it's like there's no way that wasn't equally important to him, at least in getting across some of the thematic elements was you really understanding what this place looks like and what it feels like and how weird and alien it is. I don't think there's any reason it couldn't be both. I agree. I agree. And like I said, I think Dilly, Denny Villeneuve could do it. Yeah. I'm sure there are other people, but he's just the one to me. I was like, this is you, man. This is you to a T. Go make Solaris. <laughs> oh, right. That's that. Uh, that's the longest one we've had in a while. Uh, just about over two hours. <sighs> Still shorter, hour and a half shorter in the movie. So... <laughs> Crushing it. Yeah, crushing it. Um, before we wrap up, I want to once again remind you, you can head over to patreon.com slash this film is lit. Support us for $2, 5 $15 a month. Uh, get access to different things at each level, including our review at the $5 and up level of 2018's Cold War, another beautiful Polish film that we had some issues with. Very similar. <laughs> um, uh, but we wanted to thank our Academy Award winning patron, Eli Youngs, for supporting us and for requesting Solaris. You can do the same. If you support us for $15 a month, you can not request Solaris, but you can request... <laughs> Something else, a different story, a different film uh, uh, that is based upon a book. Katie, what's next? Up next, we are having a march that I'm pretty excited about. I am too. We're doing like a mini spring series. Yeah. Um, So what we have coming up immediately next is The NeverEnding Story. um, That book by uh, Mikhail Enda and the 1984 film. Um, we'll follow that up with the never ending story part two. Yeah. And we will be joined for both of those main episodes by guest host, April Edmansky from no such thing as a bad movie pod. Fantastic. Who was on our holes episode. Yes. If you have not, 
Uh, if you don't listen to No Such Thing as a Bad Movie Pod, or if you just want to hear on this show, go back and listen to our Holes episode. But she'll be joining us for both of the NeverEnding Story episodes. I'm very excited. I don't think this is fun. I don't know if I've ever seen NeverEnding Story 1. I've I, seen NeverEnding Story 2. I am almost, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen the second one. I'm almost sure I saw the first one at least once as a kid yeah because i have like some vague memories of it but i've never read the book i don't know yeah, i don't really know anything either. about it um i'm really excited about this little mini series because both films are based on the book yeah um the the book covers like both movies um and there April, is a third movie by the way but we won't right but i don't that. i don't think <laughs> i don't it know if it's based on a book right. i don't yeah, think anyways. so um but april has seen or she has read the book before and i haven't yeah um, so she is going to read the whole book again before we watch either movie, and I am going to stop at the point of the first film. Yeah. So that we can get like both kind of. And I'm not reading there. it at all. So and we'll you're not reading it at all. Possible, yeah. Every possible. Every possible combination. Combination of uh, I, there might be another one, but it, most of the <laughs> most of the possible combinations of watching and or reading. So yeah, that should be fun. That should be. I, I'm looking forward to it because I did. I, I watched the second one a ton as a kid. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. Well, I don't know why the second one in particular, but I, that is the one I've seen the most. So, anyways, uh, yeah, uh, come back in one week's time. We'll be doing a prequel for the Neverending Story, and in two weeks' time, we're doing the Neverending Story Part One. I don't think it's called Part One. It's probably I think it's just called the Neverending Story. Yeah. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary, giant, sentient, alien oceans, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And and keep keep being awesome. awesome.